Record pitch. I want to write a new story. About a girl. A girl who's searching. The girl doesn't know what she's searching for. She just knows there's an emptiness in her life. Or maybe it's inside her. And when she finds the thing she's searching for, everything will make sense. I want a story with a happy ending. back online and join us for the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is mike this is caroline and this is paul we are back for another season of westworld tonight we're talking about episode one of season four it was called the auguries it was written by co-creator lisa joy and will sudik who as of a week ago had nothing in his imdb i don't even think he had an imdb i have no idea who will sudik is and this episode was directed by richard j lewis I don't think that's the same Richard Lewis who made like <laughs> like hell, you know. I don't think it's that Richard Lewis who touched his forehead a lot. But uh, I do not either. Maybe it's like a grandson or something. The nervous like comedian of the of the eighties. Yes, he of the undershirt and uh, black like open coat. Yeah, I think yeah, he like revolutionized the sports, revolutionized coat, action, the sports yeah. coat. Yes, yes, yes. Totally. Uh, I mean, we're back, guys. It's been forever since we've had the gang together. I mean, we did our little preview episode. I think we have to start. You guys were at the premiere. This is giant news, which we hinted at in the preview episode, but we didn't have anything to report at that point because it hadn't happened at that point. Take us through. I saw some of the pictures. You both look fantastic. Take us through what it was like to go to a, a Westworld season premiere in New York City. Well, it changes you. <laughs> It spoils you against any other kind of celebration or party you may ever attend as a normie. I'm even going to say, like, speaking to people feels like, do I have to talk to you? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yeah, I definitely feel a lot more VIP having gone there, um, for sure. First, we have to say thank you so much to ATX for having the amazing trivia contest with the awesome HBO prize of flying us. Ununited and staying in the Thompson Hotel. Amazing. It was all fantastic. So luxe, I would say. When you're talking about the smell of the hotel, <laughs> you have to know you're staying at a nice place. Well, unless unless you're not. And, <laughs> and in this I case, say that. that's probably I a say, spectrum. It's probably one say, or the other. It's can either I say the, the aroma of the hotel, not the smell. The aroma. Like uh, they were definitely pumping in some amazing smells. In fact, it's called Bowmaker. Totally snatched the body wash and shampoo and everything because they were full giant size bottles. And I'm still washing my hair with it because it smells so good. 
so I'm hearing if it's if we're referring to it as aroma, that's a good thing. If yes. it's smell, it's more like a bus bus station. Yeah, or I would have said odor, or, odor, or, right. odor, or, uh, pungency. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Uh, no, this is good the stuff. nostrils. Yes. Yeah, it really really smelled amazing. So getting ready for the premiere. We had an awesome time getting our little selves ready. Frederico was amazing for me. Did my my makeup and hair, and it was awesome. It was a little rainy that night, so we had a little bit of a hard time getting over to the Lincoln Center. No one wanted to stop in the rain. But once we finally got there, Paul, I feel like you were like jumping out of your skin. There's a lot to see. The red carpet area was inside the theater where the showing was taking place. So it wasn't so much a red carpet in the sense of a, a traditional like Hollywood opening. This was more like a press junket. So it was like invited press inside you know, as the stars paraded past the various spots. But it, this was not a public event. So that was it. Just the people that had made the, the show, the invited press, and then a couple of lucky contest winners in their plus ones. But the uh, atmosphere was very electric. Everyone walked around as if they owned the place. <laughs> there was a combination of as if they owned the place and I can't believe we're here. Like there, that both of those things were happening. Everyone was very excited beyond just the, the cast and the stars that we would all recognize. There was also all of the people who had been working on the show. So there was a lot of that like opening night excitement that they were going to see things that they worked on, whether it was the special effects or whether it was maybe the music or maybe it was a you know particular lighting or something like that. People were there from the crew that were excited themselves. You know that thing where you see a movie and then people clap at the end and then someone says, they're not here, you know, there's no one here to get the applause, so you're yeah. dumb for doing that. In this case, all the people were there. <laughs> so, like, right at the very beginning when they were, like, making the, the fly with the little white threads, you know, people were, like, audibly ooing and awing and cheering because – they themselves had worked on it. Like you could hear them like back slapping and like, it looks so good, man, like that kind of thing. So that was really, really like heartwarming to be a part of. It made you feel very insider. We had seats that were in the center of the front row of the theater. And since this was an old theater, not really, it was more like a theater that they did show and they do show, you know, cinema openings, but it was a older style. So we weren't like right up the, in, the, in the screen, so we couldn't see it. We had the best seats in the house, actually. So that was also a place where people could walk by to get to their seats. And you'll never guess who walked by us that we didn't expect to see. It was not me, so I don't know. I give up. It was Aurora Perrineau's dad, Harold. Uh, Walt! Was he screaming Walt? Was he was he screaming I, Walt? I he wanted to yell Walt theater? at him. Yes. <laughs> Walt, my boy! Walt! No, I don't. Probably not. Probably not. Uh, that's very cool. I mean, I, I've never been to a premiere like that. I've been to, I've worked some red carpets. I've interviewed people, but I've never gotten to go inside. So I'm, I'm very jealous of you guys. If you're wondering, I ate an entire pizza uh, while you guys were in New York City. I uh, I, <laughs> I ate a half white, half meatball uh, pizza from my local pizzeria sitting on the couch uh, in my underwear. So there you go. Uh, we're living all sorts of lives together. So wow, very, that's very awesome. Well, yes. in addition to your pizza night they started off by having um a player piano on the stage play the westworld theme and that itself like people were like gasping that i mean it was it was pretty wow that that was happening and i mean as much as it's like like i've seen a player piano before 
But this was not that kind of like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen a player piano. It's usually that plunkety plunk, real like, I don't know, it sounds like a children's toy kind of thing. But this was like very cool and very... I don't know, like elevated, and and the, they had this like host drone guy come the out, face, like the faceless, terrifying mm-hmm. ones. So yes. he comes out and he like does this move, like you should applaud for the player piano, like doing this, like, like, a, like a fellow automaton. Yeah. yeah, and so everyone clapped for the piano, you know, like it, it was all kind of surreal. But then we had some great introductions that were made by HBO and then by Lisa Joy. And it really got everyone in the mood, I think. There's the HBO head of content, like all content. So whatever wow. lofty C-level VP that was. And he introduced uh, Lisa Joy, who had to report that Jonathan was, had come down with COVID that morning. Please, Jonah. Jonah. Those of us right. that know him, we call him Jonah. Yes, that's true. That is so. true. So she was she was a a little um she was claiming to be unprepared but she was very well spoken and did a wonderful job of giving accolades all around and explaining how excited they were about the season and you know just how wonderful she felt about all of them getting to get a chance to get together being being very self-deprecating that you know Jonah would have given a much better spiel but she did a great job she looked beautiful she commanded everyone's attention and, uh, yeah, I was very excited to see the story she was going to tell. So fast forward, you guys get to watch the episode. Lights go right. down. Yeah. sun comes up. You guys head to the after party. What was that like? That's that's what everyone really wants to know. <laughs> who, well, who first are we rubbing all, elbows with? I, I want to say again, like actually watching it with the people in the room. I mean, like when Ed Harris like walks out on stage in the show. He's in the room and people are like cheering for him and slapping him on the back. And, you know, and there's like, you know, every little part that was like a <gasps> to us as an audience, like the people in the audience there knew it was coming, but also was like, it worked like because this is what the first time they were seeing it all edited and put together. And it was really amazing to get to be amongst the crew and the cast that had created it and they were getting a chance to see it completely different than just being like oh i got to see it first it's like i got to see it with the people who really were like puffing up their chests and being so so proud of what they had created that's special i mean anyone who's been to the theater of any kind knows seeing something in a joint experience always heightens it this sounds like the ultimate version of that though because the creators the ones who actually made it are all there and assembled and and getting that mutual you know, adulation from their colleagues, but then also taking a lap for themselves. I can't even imagine the vibe in there must have been great. It's very cool. Um, The after party had various levels of attendance right off the bat. Everybody was there. So they had done a good job. What they did was they switched over the red carpet area and the like sort of foyer area of where we all came in to go to this to the show into the after party. So we didn't actually go anywhere else. We were still in the same space in the Lincoln Center. Yes. So that was that in itself, like I give them a lot of credit because there was nothing there when we all went in. And like an hour later, there was all these like food buffet, you know, areas set up. Couches. Couches, right. Like lounge areas, bars, you know, all these, all this like really elaborate selfie lighting everywhere, which is super funny. This weird Um, VIP room that was like, lit with Super red light wacky that that you could just go into but at, there, at any given time there's only like one or two people in there even though it was kind of a bigger room it was always weird you walk by and be like those two people and they were like making a phone call like it seemed weird there was a dj uh pumping you know house music the entire time 
and there were three separate food stations and two open bars. We had joked with the other contest winner that uh, we'd be dining on caviar later, and sure enough, there was caviar. There was caviar. <laughs> Yeah, that was so funny. But like, you know, just like kudos to them. They had tons of different food choices and like Paul's a lot of food allergies and they had tons of food that he could have, which was awesome. And the food just kept coming out like they had these food stations. One was like Italian. It was funny because they also had it like based on the the worlds. So they had like the Italian station, but then they also had like the Shogun World station, which was really funny because they had these like mini Chinese takeout containers with like the food already in it. So you just like picked up your little to go thing with the chopsticks in it and could just like walk around with it. Very cute, very themey and fun. And then the one station there was like a scientist kind of guy working with dry ice and he was making these little tuna poke bowls. But it was like so elaborate and just it was a lot because the lighting was was very like eerie and red and they had it like lit up, sort of like it was like like lit up the ice and so everything. The, yeah, so then the dry ice is putting off its steam or whatever it's called. And so it's creating this whole atmosphere. But what he's making is dark also. <laughs> and so you couldn't tell what was food and what was for show. So people kept picking up the props like that was his dry ice and go like thinking because they were like in these little cups. And he'd have to be he'd have to totally break character and be like, no, those are that's a prop. Don't eat that. That's <laughs> because it was like, wait, I'm making the little poke bowl, but like all the little things on the trays were like dry ice just to create the ambiance. And he'd have to like slap people's hand away and be like, no, don't eat the dry ice. It was funny. Yeah. 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 And the food just, like she said, kept coming. Uh, oh my uh, goodness. Tray after tray uh, of like hors d'oeuvres being finger passed foods, around. Eventually, uh, so much dessert food, like little cookies and, and uh, cake pops, cake pops, little tartlet brownies. Things. Yeah. Like uh, and then like different types of strawberry shortcake came out. Like I mean, it was just like nonstop. They they just kept going. And you know, this was an industry party, so there was no like this is the VIP section in terms of like you can't go over there and talk or sit or anything or whatever. Like we just mingled with everybody else, so we got a chance to talk to several of your favorite cast members. We got the sense that Evan probably left super early well she changed her clothes which was a trickaroo because then it's like you like i knew she was wearing a blue dress to start with but then she wasn't so then she like really super blended in and then how christina of her very oh, yes. and then ed harris with all respect was putting off an old man don't fuck with me vibe that made it so that we <laughs> didn't want to fuck with him he was one of the few people who was wearing a mask and yes. i think to that end i think there was a lot of respect for like it's probably not okay to go he get wanted to up keep his, his distance face. probably yeah i think he was being socially distancing conscious and and that's completely fair but some of the other people had like whole entourages with them Whereas he was definitely like just by himself. And I think he, he wanted it that way. Right. Tessa Thompson had an entourage and that, that made her sort of unapproachable. So we didn't, we did get to see the see-through dress. If you, if you look uh, on <laughs> online and find pictures of that event, you'll see this kind of sheer skin tone color dress that, that you can very plainly make her, her silhouette underneath the dress out super clear and it was even more clear caroline has some pictures and it's it yeah. almost looks like trick photography yeah i mean i definitely from behind too like i mean it's just yeah i mean you can just see everything so i she immediately put on a man's suit coat after the red carpet and and kept it on 
for the remainder of the time. I think that, um, you know, those those are the type of dresses that are super fun when you put on and you're feeling like, yeah. And then after a little bit, you're like, I don't really want everyone seeing everything all the time. So she she quickly uh, put on a little cover up there. And uh, and, you know, and and everybody got kind of sillier as the evening went on. The drinks were super strong, super strong. Caroline never says that. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who were like around me who were like they take a drink or two and then be like, whoa, <laughs> these are super strong. Just very short period, maybe 30, 45 minutes in. People were loose, kind of dancing, talking. And uh, yeah, so we got to meet three different people that we really got a chance to actually chat with a little bit and get some pictures with. I think the audience would be interested to find out that Luke Hemsworth and Jeffrey Wright you know, they have this odd couple type chemistry on screen with their misadventures in season three and the previews for the season four looks makes it look like they will continue to have some kind of road movie kind of aspect to their story in this coming up season. Um, but it looks like in person, they also get along really well, like they'll probably stay in touch after this project because they just got on so well together, just constantly kidding around hanging around with each other in, you know, in this space when they could mingle with other people. I thought that was really fun to see. And and they were super cheesy with each other. Like, so I approached Hemsworth and was like chatting with him and I was like, you know, asking him about, you know, the fact that he had been in Austin and, and explaining that they had won this contest and if he would take some pictures and blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so like, as we were taking pictures with him, Jeffrey Wright, like behind, was doing like bunny ears, like on him, like, you know, photobombing the pictures and stuff like that. And it was just very cozy and cute and silly and just kind of, you know, just fun. Like they're good buddies. Very uncommissioner Gordon. You could very, uh, he's, he's my commissioner, Gordon. You can find a picture of that actually at Pod Clubhouse on Instagram. There's a montage photo from the night where you could see you guys looking great. Um, but that bunny ear picture is also as part of that montage too. So you guys should go definitely uh, check that out at Pod Clubhouse. So I turned into like the ambassador for whatever reason for the contest winners. Um, and so then it was just like picking your mark. Like, who do you feel like you want to go talk to next? So she found uh, Jeffrey Wright separately for us, who um, is probably taller than you might expect. And she also found Aaron Paul, who is about the same size as I am. Which was hilarious because Aaron Paul, I I was talking to him and we were just chit-chatting. I don't even remember what we were saying, shooting the shit about the evening a little bit. And then he said something looking at Paul about them looking alike or something. And I said, that's so funny that you said that. Paul was just saying how much he identifies with you on our podcast. And he was like, no way. And so he was like so animated. Like he started slapping Paul's cheeks like and he was like, you're a good looking man. And like doing like all this is like he was so funny and silly and just chatted Paul up for like so long and the two of them like really there's pictures of those as well together where you're like oh wow okay you guys do look a lot alike it was very funny Paul what was it like looking into the face of your doppelganger well for one thing afterwards I saw that he had his short Jesse Pinkman hair and I was wondering you know with Saul coming to a close and the timeline's gonna gonna like butt up with Oh, maybe potentially with the beginning of Breaking Bad. Are we going to get that long-awaited, perhaps, cameo 
from the established characters into the Better Call Saul world. But besides that... It's been confirmed they're going to be in the final handful of episodes. It's not clear in what capacity. If it's end of Breaking Bad time period or if it's beginning uh, Breaking Bad time period. So, But he had the short buzzed hair. Yes, that is season one, Jesse, for sure. But yeah, just just he's <laughs> he's I've seen so much of his work. You know, I've seen all this. I've seen Breaking Bad. I've seen some of the path. I've seen a movie or two that he's in El Camino. And so I know his like speech patterns and his mannerisms and stuff like that when he's being those other people. But but all that creeps into who he is actually. Like we've heard podcast listeners say, I, I can't, I still can't reconcile your voice coming out of your face. And it's the same thing <laughs> with someone like that, because it sounded exactly like this, this guy that you feel like you've, you, you've <laughs> known for a long time. Well, and uh, he was just so sweet with you. Like, I mean, he was not standoffish at all. Like he, a hundred, I mean, he, he held your face in his hands. You know? He did. Like, like, it was like a benediction. <laughs> It's kind of crazy. Apologiction, not a benediction. (laughs) (laughs) And he was just super smiley, very happy to chit chat. You know, again, I feel like all of the actual conversation is kind of a blur because a lot of it was like small talk to be to be fair. There wasn't a lot that we were saying, like, tell us all the scoop or anything like that, because we were not there in pod clubhouse capacity. We were there as contest winners of HBO. So, you know, as anyone would want to, we were trying to walk that line of like, yeah, we want to be fans, but we also just kind of want to blend in and act like you've been there before. Yeah. And we want to be podcasters, but we also aren't there to do an interview. Like we're just there to just chit chat and kind of hang out and just absorb the their essence. And I would say both. I mean, Hemsworth introduced us to his wife, um, who was very lovely and, and like stuff like that. We we're just being very normal, like you would at any, you know, dinner party kind of thing where you're just kind of chatting with other people. You know, I think we could probably talk to Luke Hemsworth all night if, if we didn't <laughs> try to give him his time back because he, he just was very he was happy to talk with us. Yeah, he was, he was a very friendly guy. And uh, Jeffrey Wright, you know, as, a, as another guy with a deep voice, I know that if I want to be heard at a party, I can't use my deep voice because no one will hear me. So we did not get the signature Jeffrey Wright, Bernard or Commissioner Gordon voice. He had to speak up a little bit in order to be heard. So we didn't get the full 100% Jeffrey Wright experience, I guess. But <laughs> but it was a very honest experience in that Caroline reminded him uh, about his bourbon company. And he was all of a sudden very excited to want to talk to us. Yeah. I mean, he so it was nearer to the end of the night when we were chatting with him. And, you know, he was very happy to take pictures and very happy to just kind of make make, you know, just just easy go and chit chat. But he was kind of starting to walk away. And I said, hey, our podcast partner, Mike, went to the opening of Uncle Nearest. And I wanted you to just say we're big fans and congratulations on that. And he 100 percent like turned on his heel and like we like made a little circle <laughs> and he he like was just like inviting us out to the distillery and you know he's going to be there July 16th and he was like come on out and I would love you to see it Shelbyville it's in Shelbyville Tennessee and we I would just love to have you come out and I was very 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 gracious and just so happy that we knew about his brand I was saying you know it's it's a it's a terrible 
bummer that Uncle Nearest was not plastered across every bar because maybe it was behind it's the bar. It's delicious. It should have been. I, uh, I think I, it would have been great if it was for yeah. for his sake. But I didn't. I can. I'll be honestly. I can say I didn't see it, but it could have absolutely been there. But it's I did very not small see batch. It. It's very hard to find, or at least it is up by me. I actually had to have my liquor guy order it like special because I promised him I would buy the bottles uh, as I drink guy. them. So yeah, like every good New Yorker, Mike has a guy. I've, I've got a liquor guy. I've got my liquor guy, Bobby, taking care of me. Uh, but no, no, it's delicious. It's uh, it's good stuff. Yeah, I got to meet him. Uh, they had like a whole kickoff event for Uncle Nearest back in like March of 2019. So all in all, I mean, I would say that, you know, a lot of other people we were like kind of, you know, brushing shoulders with and and people were very gracious about like coming over and being very complimentary. Ariana DeBose did walk right. By us, but she, but did, she, she was trailing a, a huge yeah, entourage yeah, with her, a lot in her wake. Mm-hmm. Uh, at I a moment, bet her entourage has expanded greatly in the last year. So. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, we decided to just go for it with anybody that was still left there. So Angela Serafi and Lisa Joy, who are as at home on super tall heels as I've ever seen a woman in real life. Angela Serafian being Clementine being for the Cole, show, yes. if people don't know. Uh, they made use of like a Batman-style secret escape route out of the back because we went to, <laughs> we went to uh, where they were just to wait for them to come back out, and they never did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was definitely like a back door. And same with Marsden, same deal. We had been kind of surveying the room and, you know, trying to figure out like, okay, well, like, who do we want to talk to or who do we want to feel like we're not interrupting, you know, their conversation. And I did this super awkward thing and continuously made eye contacts with James Marsden and then winked. I winked. And then I was so embarrassed that I winked. Why I winked, I don't know why I winked. I didn't mean to really wink, but I definitely winked. And then I was like, I can't be the one to go talk to him. I winked. Like, I'm a dork. Why did I do that? So then we kind of lost track of him and he definitely went out like a like a side back door kind of thing. So anyone interested in what uh, Marston looks like close up, though, would be probably happy to find that um, at least I thought he was every bit the leading man in person as he is on screen tall and his hair seems to be all the all the same color (laughs) and (laughs) no cracks in his skin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he he looks like he looks. That's that's uh, I would say the majority of them did. I I would say the thing that. Anything that we would say that didn't look the same is that they're all more slender and smaller than you would expect. All of the women are absolutely paper thin. I mean, when they turn to the side, they're just there's just nothing. They're so 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 thin. When, when you look at Dolores in that in that prairie dress with uh, whatever it is, the petticoat is that the yeah. right word that makes it look uh, it gives a certain dimension to her, and then you build in your mind that's what Evan Rachel Wood looks like, and then you see her in person. It's it's like did she lose about sixty pounds? She's so slight. Well, I yeah. mean, the I mean, playing Christina in this in this first episode, I I especially on the rewatch, I thought to myself, I was like, she looks so thin everywhere like her face like not even like her figure but like her face looks very very thin it's just very thin and also i would say again like the men were much more petite just generally like like even though yes morrison had like broad shoulders and stuff like that but like lisa joy had broader shoulders you know than most of the men in terms of just being like 
larger than life compared to like a lot of the men, they, they just were much more slight than you would think. And I know that that's what everyone says about people in Hollywood, like everyone is much smaller. But I mean, I was wearing heels and I'm only 5'4 without my heels. So I was probably 5'6, five, 5'7. Five, and I, my eyes were going over the tops of people's heads. No problem. That's a small bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, it takes a lot of material to build all those hosts. You know, if you could save a couple of inches, you're probably actually saving a lot of cost. You know, the funny thing about uh, Angela Safarian was that she popped from the premiere in New York City. She was at the opening night of the Bentonville Film Festival. So crazy. In, in Bentonville, uh, Arkansas, Wednesday night. Uh, she was only there that one night, so we didn't get to see her. But she was there with uh, Gina Davis. It's her film festival. And they were doing fr- Gina and Friends. They did like a script reading. So, yeah. So interesting. So she had a busy week of traveling around wow. the country. Yeah, And so, so crazy that Pod Clubhouse was also covering Bentonville. So That's probably not an, so an overlap wild. that anyone else could, could brag about. <laughs> Caroline and Angela. That's that's the <laughs> that's the Venn diagram right. of those interests right Being there. So. That, both of those events. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm just saying, I feel like Paul and I, we brought our A game in terms of conversation. And I'm saying we're pretty stylish, Paul. I mean, I don't have a game better than that game that I brought in terms of A game. There's no game above that game for me. That is the game. But Caroline... She made my game look like Z game. <laughs> she received so many compliments on her dress and how she looked. The women were coming up out of nowhere just to be like, I love that dress. It sounds like he's bragging and he is a little bragging. But to be honest with you, it is one of the few times in my life that people did like stride across the room and be like, your dress is fucking awesome. And I was like... I want to talk about your dress, too. And, like, we would just, like, chit-chat for a while. So I'm going to take those compliments because, you know, you don't get them that often. And that was pretty amazing. Show up and show out. That's the way we to go. We did. We did. Paul Paul had oh, – man, I'm glad you took your suit in, even, Paul. Like, he, he was he was fitting right in there with the with the, the slender look that oh, yeah. all those men oh, were yeah. going there, for. There was a look, and I, and I fit the look. There was another look for men that obviously were in charge of something and didn't have to give a shit. So they wore, like, you know, black jeans, uh, a sport coat, and, like, a baseball cap. I can't do that in this crowd. That's <laughs> I don't I don't deserve that just yet. But uh, there was that element there. Definitely was. Uh, there was a there was a Wheel of Fortune category actually that Tuesday night. It was a before and after. It was Aaron Paul Daly. Is that a mirror? Is that is that is that Memorix or is that? It was. You know, we had just talked about that on the previous podcast, and I was like, I don't know. I mean, I guess you know they they have some general characteristics, but I saw it in the flesh. They look a lot more alike than anyone would realize once they're once they were actually standing literally face to face with each other. Maybe it helped with his hair short, my hair short. You know, you see, we're about the same height. The whole thing, your profile. We could, we could, I could be, I could like knock him out, take him to the bathroom, change clothes with him. <laughs> you would have had to wear those Harachi sandals though that he was wearing. The, the white, he like was linen white suit, Harachi sandals. What you need to do is you need to find out who his stunt double is. Yeah. And you need to take that guy and out. get brave. See, I was going to make a j- joke Jeff about Galooly that. Jeff him yeah. right in the knees <laughs> and, and take him out. But the problem is you'd have to be brave enough to want to be a stunt man. That's true. Even for stand-ins. I'm sure there's a, he probably has a second guy just for stand-ins for like, you know, when he's in his the trailer. Lighting. Exactly. Like, yeah, for lighting stand-ins and stuff. They don't have to stunt all. That's like, you know, um, I'm Aaron Paul. I could be the Brad Pitt role. to his Leonardo DiCaprio. 
There you go. <laughs> it's all coming it's, together. It's all coming together like a perfect plan. <laughs> so all in all, I mean, A plus to HBO for a primo party. And again, thank them so much for having such an amazing prize at ATX. No idea that that is where it was going to lead us for sure. And, uh, you know, always a good idea to keep a, a good suit and a nice dress in the back of your closet because that's exactly what happened to us. I have no idea why I purchased that dress why I had it, I don't know. It was years in the making, so it finally got to be out in the world. And uh, What a segue. Yeah. It seems like buying that dress was an augury, an yeah. omen, a sign of the future to come. <laughs> that is the name of tonight's episode. Amazing. I, I, was, I was trying to think. I don't know what that was or if it was made apparent what the augury was in this episode. I'm curious Ooh. if you guys had any thoughts about that. Because maybe it didn't reveal itself. You know, they use it. The title was not the augury. It was the auguries, plural, which indicates that maybe there were several signs or several omens in this episode. Okay. Well, I think we have a couple, don't we, Paul? Because we were talking about this right before, although we were not using the proper terminology. The bit with Maeve and her uh, meditation, seeing something that may be a memory of Caleb getting pretty beat up as they jump out of a building where they're blowing up. Solomon or one of the Rehoboam predecessors. Mm -hmm. Could that be in the future? I mean, that's not established that Maeve has that ability to do that. But also her power seems to have extended beyond where we last saw her. She didn't have the ability to knock out a town's worth of, of power, but she did. While she's asleep, I mean, not even consciously doing it, uh, which is always the sign, right? It's like if you've watched Stranger Things, I'm going to spoil a little bit of the finale at this point, because by the time this is, comes out, people will probably have seen it. But it's like, L, she can bring down a helicopter even when she's wearing a dog collar. You know, like like your power cannot be contained even when she's asleep, maybe. Yeah, so she's definitely ramped up in the uh, seven years since the season three finale, which is another little timestamp they give us, right? Eight years since the sublime information was stolen, seven years since the riots ended. So uh, so a little bit of a time jump. Were you guys surprised by the time jump? I think we 100% needed that time jump to get us, you know, established to the next section of the story. One of the things that I talked a lot about in watching and rewatching and watching and rewatching this episode was that I, as an audience member, feel a little bit like I'm in a loop um, because we're talking about the same things. I mean, what I was going to bring up when you're talking about omens is, you know, the the maze on the fire escape area, yeah. you know, the, the even the teddy of it all, you know, is like all these omens of things to come, you know, and there's so many little moments throughout that we may hit upon now or may end up just stretching throughout the whole season. But there are so many things that I feel like I personally am in a loop watching it that I needed the time jump to be like, we are moving forward. We're, we're not stuck in a loop that our loop is it's still there, but it, it's it's continuing past where we were. I'm curious. I'm curious if uh, the end credit, the after credit scene in the season three finale, the very last scene where it's Bernard wakes up uh, or comes back online in the sublime with the headgear on. He's covered in dust and the room looks like it's covered in dust as if it had been abandoned for quite some time. I wonder if that is indicating that it's in the same eight year or seven year time jump as everything else that takes place in this episode. We didn't get to see Bernard in this episode, but I thought of that right away when I heard that time jump confirmed. It made me think of that final scene where he was, you know, covered in so much debris. Definitely dangerous to assume that what we're seeing is concurrent with itself. 
I, there's a part of me that's not sure this entire episode took place in the same timeline. We would be fools if we thought it did, yeah. I think. I mean, the show has taught us everything. Never assume timelines, uh, even with the same actors together in the same scene. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, there are definitely parts of this of this episode, I think, that feel like maybe they're taking place even in, in different timelines. And I'm very curious to see, are we going to see the backfill of that time jump? Are we going to get to see pieces of the seven years, the, the end of the riots, the dismantling, quote unquote, of all the machines put on the scrap pile? You know, the world, Dallas going on, William coming forward we have a william host we didn't get any explanation there's a william host introduced at the end of the season three finale in the after credit scene when did they reach fidelity when did the jim delos model move on to uh, a fidelity model that could actually have a human host is that a human host is that william's brain ball inside the william man and black host or is it another of the pearls inside of the william model I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think we have enough information really yet to know. Any other omen signs before we move on? There were definitely people from the past that came back in this episode, right? We had original recipe Walter, the milk drinking Walter uh, from yeah, season one was right. back. Uh, Colonel Brigham, the Confederado uh, leader from season two was back. All in new roles, but still being kind of bad guys. I mean, I think we talked about things like, you know, her dropping the phone and having Peter pick it up and having that moment of the William picking up her can, you know, on the street and, and handing it to her and then like, you know, locking eyes and, and sitting up all of those cues for me. And I'm going to I guess I'll call them cues versus omens, but just that we're back in the same we're we're looping it again, you know, right. you know, we're we're seeing all the things of her waking up in the morning, the fact that she does do painting, like all these things like I know that those are not exactly, I suppose, not defined as omens, but I mean, they're they're just like these. To me, they are predictive that like you are going to be experiencing these same loops. Well, I mean, I think the whole introduction of NPC Peter and his idea of referencing the tower where he talks about the tower, the homeless man talks about the tower, not knowing what the tower is, her not understanding what it is, but Peter killing himself, asking her the question, did you write this or am I choosing this? Those can also be omens, right? I mean, the, the confusion of not understanding your world that you're living in, very, very Westworld, where you're always seemingly being put in this place of having to awaken. But there are clues and there are roadmaps that it was there all along for you to figure out unfortunately sometimes you have to watch the whole thing and then go back and see it but my guess is much like how the reveries work to trigger the awakening in season one the auguries are probably going to become apparent as we look back once the season gets going forward fun trivia question for you mike which westchester school for gifted youngsters did the actors for peter and teddy both attend in the early 2000s hmm uh, does it have is it rye day school it is xavier's school for gifted youngsters oh um duh i'm sorry i missed the obvious x-men uh, reference there i should have known your mars did see if you had said who was a prince charming stand-in i would have known what you were talking about because marston <laughs> was in enchanted as we've discussed yes so. but also aaron stanford was in x2 he played pyro See, it's all connected. All Marvel, Westworld lives in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Forget DC, Warner Brothers. You're trying to get in on this Marvel action. We see you. We know what you're doing. Transparent. Let's talk about the opening credits, because I think this is for the first time. I mean, we, we talked about the season three opening, right? Because we didn't understand the Rehoboam of it all for quite a while. What the moving of light to dark all represented. 
This season opening credits seemed very throwbacky to me. This felt very much like season one opening credits, which I liked. And, and it was kind of going along, like Caroline, you're saying, like the waking up routines and going back on the loops. There was a lot of callback and, and retro season one vibes. And I felt like we had that here, too. Curious, did anything stand out for you guys in the season in the credit opening sequence? For sure. In our last podcast, we, I had just mentioned the fly and, you know, the idea of what is the fly going to mean? And I can tell you guys that having been in the premiere with the creators of the actual computer graphics, I guess, is that the right way to say it, Paul? I don't know. Yeah. That that created the fly on screen. Like they were hooting. Like when it started to go, like they were like, it looks amazing. <laughs> like they were so proud of themselves. So you could tell like the, the actual cast and creator people who had like done that exact work was were there. And they were so freaking thrilled with how it came out. Obviously, that stands out when upon rewatch, you know, like that. It was like a that's like a core memory of mine now, I think. <laughs> it's your cornerstone. Your cornerstone it, it, it is being be. at the As premiere. People cheering for that particular scene because it let it let us know without having any other context. Like this fly thing is really fucking important. Yeah. And they were thrilled to see it come on the screen. I'm really curious if at a very macro level, if the fly is important just because it's host technology in such a small package, right? I, I think back to when uh, Sylvester was trying to get that bird to reanimate mm -hmm. uh, a couple of seasons ago, and, and he was working so hard to because you know, he wanted to become a programmer, co you know, a coder, and, and a bird much larger even than a fly. So having that sophisticated technology, which maybe has mind control power or whatever was going on with Hugo in the opening sequence, if it, if it is meant to be a metaphor for look how far we have progressed, the sign of technology is that it's always getting smaller, more powerful and smaller all the time and the fly is as small as you can get you know and be a be a productive insect in this world it makes me look back actually to the flies that we saw in original season of, of westworld and think about were they surveillance or were they something else like were they something that we were not giving any attributes to besides right. the fact that it was like look she didn't flinch to it right i but, mean they write like, the, mm, right or were they actually sending some sort of signals into her brain or were they actually you know like i said providing some sort of camera footage or like who knows what they were actually doing or helping connect a hive mind right mm -hmm. which was which was technology we didn't learn about until like bluetooth in it <laughs> right until season 2 where right, the hosts are bluetoothing information to each other so they can keep on their loops and their information maybe the flies were there to bridge gaps but i mean the flies had always represented the sign of the host versus the humans right and, their and response so it's, to the fly yes. right well right and using the fly of do you swat it or do you let it crawl over your eyeball oh even saying that <laughs> makes me twitch um but, but you know it's a sign of sentience in a way and so but i this, never gave it any credit to mean more than that of course like i thought course. it was of course just the cue to us like oh this person's the host they didn't swat it away it's on her it's on her freaking eye Ball. she didn't right. even blink versus like wait a minute what if it has like a whole mind of its own literally and is like doing its own little business i think that was interesting i think the machine printing was also made of the same material 
it's that same tower shape, which is another thing too. It, the tower that's printing is made of the same material that the hosts are made of, like that white resin material. But we see that tower in this episode. It's the shape of the lampposts in the episode. The ones right outside of Christina's apartment are the same design as the tower machine that we see in the opening credits. The same design as the tower we see in the season trailer, which was very much a focus of for people of the trailer there's a no offshore tower shown in one of in the, one of the trailer sequences that's that same design you know with the circle with the kind of cones shooting through the middle of it interesting i mean the the idea of the printing machines is that a god making machine i'll try not to get into it but there's a ton of god imagery in here you have christina christ or the the rebirth of the dolores figure the first figure that dolores represents Okay, the other thing was definitely in the first season, the body, if you will, sinks into the vat of the white goo. And Mm -hmm. in this season, it actually comes up out of the goo. And it's more like a human skeleton looking. So there definitely is a switcheroo here. And and obviously the the last sequences of the opening credits have all of the hosts or whatever those creatures, they are. whatever they are, in their own individual solitary cylinders, but then kind of come together to make what looks to be to be a giant brain ball or pearl. And they look like they're like pushing on it. They're not like happily inside there. Right, they they're are caged. Like right, they seem to be. Yeah, they seem to be caged in their cones, individual cones. Just based on the trailers, it seemed to be a theory that there was going to be the Hail Dolores or Dolores Hailbot uh, host seems to be bent on exacting on humans what humans did to the host for years in Westworld. That's why I'm having hesitancy saying that those are definitely hosts in the cylinders. I don't know. I don't I, I, I don't know. Anything else? One preliminary aspect that I'm interested in from a world building perspective is the state of the union. There's this prevailing idea in speculative fiction that America is not long for this world in its current state. There will be some kind of melding with the power exerted by corporations and the lack of ability to control areas that are don't want to be controlled that will make the reach of America, the United States as it stands today, lessen over time to the point where various jurisdictions rise up and hold more sway over the local people than does the federal government, regardless of the fact that the federal government still exists. So when we go to see the guys that seem to own the Hoover Dam, I mean, cartels don't get to own the Hoover Dam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's, right. not, that's not how dams work in the United States as we know it. And so I was just questioning, like, what does this future version of America look like? We have the line from the from the man in black when he says, this is America, everything's for sale. But it doesn't say this is the United States. It just kind of makes me wonder, like, what, what – it's yeah. not important. I don't think it's important. But just, just world building wise, have we turned a little more – you know, we maybe the cities still have some kind of sense of civilization as we recognize it. But maybe when you get further out, maybe things get a little more loose because um, – of one reason or another, after the the riots, maybe things changed drastically on on certain levels that we haven't gotten fully exposed to us yet. 
And you also have nature abhors a vacuum, right? So in the southwest part of the country where there's a lot more space in between all of the towns and civilization, a lot more desert and everything, maybe post-riots, cartels. I mean, the Men in Black, I think it was interesting, the Men in Black says cartel or whatever you're calling yourselves these days. <laughs> right. It maybe moved in. There was the vacuum, right? I mean, I think in, in season three, don't we go into kind of like the Chihuahuan Desert on the Mexico side to get to the facility where they're holding... I think they're actually where they're holding William, right? Um, so that sounds right. Maybe there is, you know, maybe that snaked up all through the through the Southwest more in the in the intervening years after the riots. It's it's interesting. I think it's I think it's important, probably from a world building standpoint. It's funny you mentioned the dam. The thing first thing I thought of when I saw that was that dam will certainly be exploded uh, by the end of the season. It, it was check like off check dam. off dam, check off dam for a hundred percent. I could almost smell the dynamite stuck to it. Well, and that sounds very exciting and exactly like I. I I also think like what is technology's like greatest enemy water <laughs> always seems to be water right you dropped your freaking awesome several thousand dollar phone like in the toilet and that killed it right it's like ah there's something about water wiping things clean that feels right on. And there's also just something so human about this idea that we can tame water, that we can control it, we can block it, we can dam it and use it. We can redirect for, it to our will. Uh, to our will. We can bend water to our will. It can make our electricity for us. No one ever asked water what it wanted. Right. You know, <laughs> it's just like the drone coming out to compliment the player piano host. You know, yeah. like that's a very human thing. And, and water wants to be free. So. Yeah. And will destroy you if you fuck with it. Let, let's talk about the Men in Black because this is definitely the host Men in Black. Definitely, he has all I, his fingers. Yeah, I, he. I'm unclear if the if the living one is still alive somehow through some miraculous slit throat surgery that maybe he got after the end of the season three uh, after credit scene. Which guys, if you haven't gone and watched, you should. I think it's important because there again there are scenes in the trailer that make it seem like Hale Dolores is talking to a human William, not a host William. Right. Uh, well, and there's a scene of of a guy in a in a circle. That right. looks and very Williamy, like torture. And plus, there's and there's another. About, she's talking. I mean, she's saying, uh, "We're going to do to you what you've done to us for yeah. all these years." Or, and there's or something, something about like Haloris in general that I keep saying to Paul. Like I keep saying it over and over, and he's like, "That sounds so petty," but like I don't care. She is not going to just slit someone's throat and let them die. She is going to slit your throat, make you bleed to the edge of death, and then bring you back, and then make you die, and then bring you back. Like, there's right. going to be that torture element that I have a lot of question marks about who's running the show in the world that Christina lives in, and the way that she's antagonized and harassed, that this is her fault, and she's hurting people, and she she's constantly scared and running and also there's something about that that feels like if you needed to create hell for someone it could look like this I, I no, I agree. And and just I mean, I don't know it's petty. I mean she I think That's the, the breaking, word that Paul used and I was like, I think, Oh, I don't think it's petty. I think well, it's well, just think, like vengeful, yeah. yes. But I think the breaking point for her was losing Michael, you know, Ely and her daughter in that car crash. And the same yeah. reason that she keeps the burn on her skin is is as a reminder of it. I think I think girlfriend's just working out her you know, <laughs> vengeance catharsis uh on humans. I think that was her breaking point. I think she was willing to play ball until then. 
And it's like playing with your food. And like, now it's playing with your you food. Know, right? not, like she's just she's like the spider in the web. And like she's just going to keep messing with it. You know, just keep playing with it and playing with it. My question is about the William that we're seeing is, is it William or is it another of Brain Pearl in the William body? Because that's huge. That That's huge if they perfected in the aftermath of Jim Delos's, you know, hundreds of attempts over so many years failing. Did they perfect the human imprint? That's huge because that was the entire corporate espionage plot of season two was this was was what it seems that they've achieved with the man in black here. I want to know. I'm under the impression that the ball that's inside his head is a conglomeration of his behavior, actions, comments, thoughts, everything of what went on in the park. I do believe that this is the coming to fruition of what they were trying to do. And, you know, how you acted in the park is how you suddenly are. I tend to agree. I, I think that it is a copy of William that has been tweaked by Hale Loris. And this is what we get. I a very mean, compliant William. <laughs> I mean, that, but that, that's huge. I mean, that's significant, though, because it turned out all along, you know, and as a corporate lawyer, you know, I love good corporate espionage plot lines. This was a huge thing. The entire reason that they wanted to get that information out through Abernathy and, and get it uploaded and, and out of the parks because they feared Ford would delete it all was the guest information because they wanted to be able to create a mortality and sell immortality. Remember, again, in the final after credit scene, you have that giant room of printing machines um, uh, just mm -hmm. seem to go on forever. That's huge if in the seven years they have perfected that technology. Part of the trick and the twist of it, of course, is that it's it's how he behaved in the park. So right. it's, you know, it's, it's not you. It's not you, right? It's not it's, it's you. you. It's not right. your true you, right? It's not well, you. I, well, I know, I know. I mean, we I can mean debate but it, that. maybe it is you. <laughs> well, we can debate that, but it's, I, I right. don't, I don't think that it would be fair to say that it is you, universal capital Y, like everything that encompasses you. It's you unbridled, sure. But I don't think it's fair to, you know, a, a, a human in their normal, let's say typical loop, if you will, at their own home has filters and boundaries right. and stuff like that that don't exist in this other one. So this one that we're getting is Park William. So I think we expect right. him to be friggin' ruthless. Right. This William doesn't probably very concerned about Juliet, his, you know, the dearly departed wife or Emily, his dearly departed no. daughter. Right. I mean, he's probably got like a, a hankering for the maze and for the game. So, uh, yeah, with a with a, a, a nice amount of bloodlust. I like, though, the episode did hit upon this. Did the riots reveal, did the insight machine, did Rehoboam reveal uh, who we could be or who we were? I thought that was an interesting conversation. And Caleb coming down on who we could be side of it all and his friend saying nah man this is who we always were it just revealed us which was the whole thing about westworld was this is who you really are because it's answering the question of if no one was watching what would you do it's, it, it's interesting and if that's the version that gets copied into these hosts i but i have to add into that little one just because it matters to me i guess personally it's not just who would you be if no one was watching, but who would you be if no one was watching and no one was actually getting hurt? Like the actual consequences didn't exist, meaning like you're not killing a real person or you're not killing. You, do you get what I'm saying? And that mm -hmm. part matters because it takes a, it takes away like your empathy and your 
um, that part of you that has like the the little voice in your head that says like, I don't, I don't want to hurt someone else. I, I don't want to do that. And that part is a part of who you are. But by taking away the stakes and the consequences, I don't think it's fair to say then that's who you really are. Because I don't, I don't think that's true because the world that we live in as humans has consequences and that's just as real but you could definitely see the hail loris that we were getting by the end of season three not so much concerned about the consequences oh no no right. like yeah. i'm not someone who's going to yell uh, and berate like regular humans right but when my alexa doesn't do what i want i am ready to, to lash out at her right because there's no consequences she has no actual right. feelings and so i'm fine with yelling at her but i don't think that's the real me you know, I just know that there's no one on the receiving end of that. It's a great dovetail. There's definitely more Men in Black to talk about, and we can maybe put a pin in why their ambitious timeline is. What are they are they planning on building something? Why they're buying all the scrubland around the dam in addition to the dam itself? I think those are all good questions that probably will get answered as the season goes on. But what you're talking about plays so nicely into the Christina rights for NPCs, non-playable characters in, in Olympiad Entertainment, because that's cannon fodder. That's what her douchebag, you know, investment or bro date uh, says you know for most players background characters are just cannon fodder and and it's true anyone who's played video games modern video games recently npcs are cannon fodder and it has no consequence what you do to them you can berate them like you berate your alexa and your siri i have said horrible things to my alexa and siri horrible things i would never say to a person <laughs> when they annoy me and they don't give me the answer that i, I want i think i just witnessed a meltdown paul had with the alexa like yesterday no paul a meltdown where you were like why can't you listen to me <laughs> well she was being insubordinate <laughs> right. right because she's an yeah. NPC because it doesn't matter it doesn't have consequences there's no, but what happens no one, right? what happens when alexa or siri turns into peter and he's jumping off a fucking building and trying to slice you like what happens what happens when the NPC decides that it is alive. It's Johnny Five. It's alive and it and, has rights and it wants to be heard and it and wants I'll to have consequences. Say that like for most people, because before this, before Alexa, say none of us had anything like that in our house. Maybe we yelled at the, I don't know, the lawnmower. Maybe we yelled at like you know when you're trying to get something started or something. The vacuum cleaner breaks. Whatever. Maybe you're yelling at inanimate or objects. Your fish. Or, okay, you know, but or, what you I'm know, saying or, is like yeah. there's something about the regularity in which we all yell at the Alexa that actually I think weirdly is like training us into yelling at AI in a way that didn't exist before we had AI in our life. Same with like the NPC stuff here. Like I don't play video games on the regular, so I don't have that part of me like watching Free Guy or something like that where people are getting blown up. People around me who played video games all the time were not even remotely phased. And I was like, whoa, why'd they just blow that other guy up? Like, he didn't even have anything to do with it. I know it sounds silly, but Free Guy, I think, is extremely important to go watch for the context of the NPC aspect of Westworld. Only because it exposes to the larger audience things that people that play Grand Theft Auto, where you get rewards for beating up certain classes of NPCs, or Red Dead Online, or Red Dead Redemption 2, the, the story mode, where griefing NPCs, torturing them, tying them to the back of your horse, and riding around with them, like... These are things you could do, and 
it, it, it people do it all the time and it doesn't phase you and in fact sometimes you're rewarded for doing it it's an interesting thing to kind of bring to the fore especially in a show that's so concerned with free will and does free will exist what makes us human what gives us rights to be able to control ourselves and have agency over ourselves it's a really interesting conversation. I, I mean, Paul, I know you play video games. I'm curious what your stance on NPCs are in light of Peter in this episode and to him accusing Christina of ruining his life and, and, and writing a story that's causing him to have all this kind of grief and pain. You know, it's funny. Um, I, I can remember trying one time a long time ago to drive responsibly in Grand Theft Auto, you know, and all of a sudden... I found like I was not having as much fun as I was having when I drove up onto the onto the sidewalk and creamed a whole crowd of them and then just kept going. It's it's funny the the term NPC has has come up in um recent podcasting I did with a friend of mine for the Obi-Wan Kenobi show cuz we were trying to you know to talk about different characters and different people come up and then my, my friend Mark applied the term NPC to a character that that was just basically going to die quickly and all of a sudden now I'm looking at this at this new season of Westworld with the same like well who am I watching that they're giving screen time to that's actually an NPC which is funny because <laughs> right. that's just new terminology for red shirt or new terminology for right. or, or, uh, any dispensable disposable you know right. character person who, who the second they just bring them on for one moment and you're like well, this guy's going to die. Like, he has no part here. I'm so happy you mentioned Redshirt because for people that are watching this that are of a certain age are thinking, I don't understand NPCs and non-playable characters. I don't, I don't play online. I was like, yeah, but you've seen this, though. You've seen when Kirk goes down in Star Trek and there's three Redshirts in him. He's coming back alive. It's the guys in the Redshirts <laughs> that are going to die. Like, or you like understand three guys you've never concept. seen every and other week. And you don't week. care about it. Yeah. You're, not, you're not losing sleep over the loss of an NPC of or like a Redshirt. Fred, Ed, and Jed. Those three right. died. <laughs> you know, when when Peter screams out to her in the voicemail, you know, your game is ruining my life. That's mind blowing because I have I've killed a decent amount of NPCs in my life because sometimes they're annoying like Alexa uh, <laughs> and you, just easier to blow them out of the way. I've never stopped to think. I was like, man, I just made that NPC have a horrible fucking day. Oh, I ruined God. that guy's life. But that's <laughs> what it is. When, if he showed up at my door with a knife, I'd probably be more hesitant about what I was doing and what I was writing. So my curiosity in, in moving forward with these NPC type concept really has to do with what you just said, showing up on the doorstep and saying, you're ruining my life. I can't decide where I want Christina to play into all of this in terms of where she is in her wokeness. And we have to all decide if she's a human. Is she a host? host. Is she being tortured by Haloris? By, you know, being put into this scenario and just constantly being tormented by all these people saying, you're you're killing me, you're hurting me. Because that's essentially what she did to Hale. She used her as an NPC. Right. She used her as disposable cannon fodder. And she could take more bullets over here. And, and not a, in not an overt machine gun way. But the attack on the steps, you know, the the man lurking on the on the fire escape, that level of mental torture, I feel like is like this fascinating NPC kind of play, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, let, let's start a little bit at the beginning, because I think we need to establish where we are and, and, and the best that we can and who Christina is the best that we can. You have the what I'm going to call the Park Bros audio clip, which we'll insert <laughs> here. That's insane. This is way better than I expected. This place is fucking wild. Can you believe this is your first time? Come on. That clearly indicates that they're in some kind of park. Now, I've seen people online say this is a simulation, but this seems like a park to me. The way they're talking about it is the same way uh, that William and Logan talked about Westworld when they first showed up in season one. I can't believe you've never been here before. This place is fucking wild. It's so much better than I assumed. They're talking about a park. And Christina looks back at them in the episode, but doesn't really register it. Almost as she she doesn't look like anything to her, you know, mm, and, yeah. and, she, and she goes goes about her day so i think it's definitely a park i, I want to throw in the idea of like simulation versus park right i don't know if that's yeah, what i don't know what that means about. it does that well, mean I anything do. i think okay. i do i don't Please. do you paul i mean i think i get that right it's the matrix yeah it's the difference between like you having on you know like we here have on our oculus in a simulation of being there versus we pack our bags and go on a mm. physical train and go to an actual entertainment park where we're physically interacting with them so could it be a simulation where these guys are just sitting on their couches in their underwear, but they are jacked in in the park? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. So that makes sense. So that that would be a simulation versus being physically there, yeah. which does make sense insofar as moving technology along, right? It does. I mean, it's what's happening in our real life world. If you were inclined to do Westworld, wouldn't you rather just do it from your couch than go? Maybe not. Maybe you do want to go to the physical place, but if Westworld is a fucking ghost town because of the mass death that it happened there seven years ago, eight years ago. Well, maybe you want to have the Westworld experience. You could do it from your couch now with your pizza in your underwear. You know, right. while I mean, that's what I'm guessing. Premieres right? in New York City. <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever, man. I wasn't jacked into the park. You know, whatever. We should have found out who the other contest winner was sooner, Paul, and asked her to take Mike as her plus one. Uh, then it could have been the three of us plus Wendy. Here's my theory, though. I'm curious what you guys think about this. I'm not sure that this is a Delos property. My theory was that this is a park, but that it's someone else that got a hold of Delos's IP or some of Delos's IP and is now running their own competition. The Pepsi, if you will, to Coca-Cola of a Delos-like park, a Westworld-like park. Do you recall in the first season, Mike, how... The first people to recognize the various timelines first recognized that there were various Delos and Westworld logos, depending on where we were, who we were with, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That was the marker. So good call on this one, Paul. When the man in black, uh, faux William in my notes, gets out of his his hovercraft, whatever you call the, it. Uh, it was a sweet ride. I was a big fan of the Delos look, chopper. Look closely at the logo on it. And you'll see that it is either an evolution of the Delos logo or something new because it is not the same. And it looks like it actually says X-E-L-O-S. It could just be a D missing no, the we, vertical line. No, we really zoomed in on it. It really looks like an X in place of the D. So is this a new company that Haloris has formed? Because this is me putting on my lawyer hat. You have... 
Delos. Then we have Insight on top of that. If we have a fucking Olympiad Entertainment on top of that, that's too much corporate structure for my liking. <laughs> this really has to be a separate company from Delos to me without making my brain explode. I, I guess I know shell companies go deep all the time. Okay, but... so this is going to be a super small thing, and I can't really back it. This is just some sort of little gut thing, okay? So Delos to me means like of or from something, right? That's what the day of like Delos means. Of yeah. Or from. If you remove the of or the from, then you just have the thing. So if it's like this is the this is the robot of the creator, right? And instead you just have the robot or the host now, there's something about the X that kind of removed the creator. And so to me, somehow this is Haloris. Like whatever this land is, this is hers. And I got from the streetlights thing, I did get the tower. But I got the number seven. That just kept coming up in my head over and over again. Like and I know you talked park. about, yeah, because I know you were talking about five as like the next one we needed to see. But I well, see no, four. 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 Okay. Pardon yeah. me. Four. I see a seven. I, I, there's something about it that just, I, I don't know, something about my the graphic design part of it all, just to my eyes, I just keep seeing sevens around the park right. to me. And again, I'm going to refer you guys to the preview episode where we delve into the New York that we're seeing here, which, again, in the trailer shows there's like a map like like we used to see in the park in the control room of this modern New York. But then there was this also old time New York. So we had a whole conversation in the preview. Is one of these park four, which we've never gotten to see? Is it is it or is it something else? I like the idea of the seven that it that, it, you know, it stands as a, as a subconscious seventh park indicator. I don't know. I don't know. It's just what's coming to mind. And again, that somehow that X removing the day part of it, the of or the from, and just somehow having that X, it just feels very much like all you removed the Ford, you removed the whatever, and all you're left with is that product. I, I'm sad to say I did not zoom in on that on the copter. I was too busy admiring the uh, like, <laughs> the like hovercraft nature of. Like, it the definitely is, and it wasn't just. We did some tricky bits. We stopped the TV, but then I used my phone and then even zoomed in using the zoom on the phone to really really look at it. To me, it's it's an X. I, I feel it's an X, Paul. It's very subtle. Companies they they evolve their logos over time, but this is a company that had kind of very public disasters on <laughs> all on their head, you know. Yeah. So, changing their name, changing their logo, evolving their logo, whatever, all makes some sense. But I I think it's worth noting. I think it's worth noting it because it because it, it played such an important part marking time previously in the series, noticing graphic design. We talked a little bit at the start of this episode about the callback of the overhead waking shots, which is how this episode begins, where Christina's story begins. And and they do it a couple of times, this idea of she's on her loops. But I also maybe think, and, and I know I'm not the first one to come up with this, but are the loops of the host any different, really, than daily life routines? My days look very fucking similar one to the other, mostly. Is it just a fun season one callback or is it making a larger statement? Do you think of if you can't tell the difference, does it matter? Right. Is she may be a human, but she lives a life just like a host. She wakes up every day in the same way. She goes to her office at Olympiad every day in the same way. Does it matter if she's a host or if she's human? Of course, I do think on some level, yes, it matters because we want to think something about, again, going back to the free will question. However, I think there are several great moments the roommate holding up the two different pairs of shoes, the black or the white, super easy for most people to say, hey, that reminds me of the hats. It seems like, you know, making the choice between the white and the black. But I'm going to go even further from just like a fashion standpoint. I was telling Paul, like, 
everybody in this world dresses monochromatically. It would make zero sense for her to ever choose the black shoes because the woman was wearing a white dress at the time. So to me, it was like a checks and balances. Like it was a way every morning the roommate holds up the shoes. And so long as she chooses every time to dress the roommate the same as everybody else, she's still in her loop. I'm getting a little bit of the sniff of the Neil Patrick Harris character from the recent Matrix movie. A A person inserted into the player character's life to keep an eye on them for the greater system. Fidelity checks. I I had the same idea, but I actually went to Total Recall. Um, <laughs> See, and I went to fashion. I went to like she will be an outlier if she chooses black shoes with a white well, dress. It's, it's the it's the check, right? It's the, yeah, it's the keeping a check because is. in Total Recall, Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife, who is a very young Sharon Stone or Sharon Stone before people knew who she was, is inserted by the company at the heart of the thing to keep an eye on him, essentially, and he eventually figures it out. I actually had this moment about. Maya, who is Ariana DeBose, making her debut uh, as in as joining Westworld. Um, she's playing Maya here. I actually had it with Caleb's wife, uh, oh, yes. Wadi. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just the way she's ragging on him and and yes. and discouraging him from why are you still fighting the war? Like, there's this whole thing where Sharon Stone trying to buy time, like tries to lure Arnold and having sex in Total Recall, and really is just playing this watcher role. She shamed him into putting his weapon away. Essentially disarming him, you know, in many ways. And so there's a lot there. Yeah. No, but there was something about that. She questions his fatherhood. She says you're going to leave. She says essentially like you're a shitty father because you're leaving here, even though he's very clearly like trying to keep them all alive. Like very sus of Awadi. That's the name of of his wife. Yeah. Not a fan. Yeah, well, do you want to talk about her right now? Because I, I would like to finish Maya real quick. But Yeah, no, let's finish. I want to finish because because Caleb has this whole thing. This yeah. other little portion about her offering the red lipstick. There's something equally about that that feels like there's something about that red lipstick that is either some sort of sedative, some sort of um, anytime she's questioning what they're doing or whatever, she's offered the lipstick. Even when she is at the date and she starts to feel like, I don't want to be on this date anymore. This is bullshit. She goes to the bathroom and her first reaction is to put on the lipstick like that's going to soothe her. Right. And she doesn't. She opts not to. It's just, it's just so weird. I mean, even a colorblind person would see that her lips are clearly They're fully perfect. already done up. Because so, they're, they're right. gleaming in that scene. She's like, you want some more lip? No. But it isn't lipstick. I mean, that's clear to me, especially, I mean, even in that date, you know, well, they the keep guy pushing tabs. Keeps, yeah, keeps encouraging her to like basically check herself by taking some sort of tab. Well, her response to I write NPC characters because they're important stories, not for the players, but for myself. His response is, you sound depressed. I'm not doing it for the players. I'm doing it for myself. How so? Real life can be disappointing. Not that it's so bad. Just there should be more to it. We just haven't found the right man yet. You sound depressed. There's tabs for that. I'll fix you right up. What if I'm not the one that's broken? What if it's the world that needs fixing? There's tabs for that feeling too. 
I mean, on top of being a fucking charmer, this guy is, I mean, <laughs> he's definitely pushing the whole tabs thing. And I know women travel in packs and watch their others back, but she goes with her to the date like she is like a chaperone and is waiting at the bar for her. Just very involved in, in Christina's life. And I know friends do that, and especially roommates sometimes, you know, they're really looking out. I found her intrusive in her life, though I didn't make the next leap to the total recall, either the watcher step, but it makes a lot of sense because she is very much trying to control behavior in the same way I think Awadi was trying to control Caleb's behavior. She comes off as an NPC in this first episode, but you don't cast an Oscar winner in an NPC. But I mean, again, anyone who plays video games, MPs, there are certain NPCs who are super important because they gatekeep you. They keep you from going down that road or that alley or into that building that you're not ready to go into yet or that the game doesn't want you to go. Those are very important non-playable characters. They are there to be like, no, no, we should not go in here yet. This is not where you're supposed to be. Why did you make a left? You were supposed to make a right. You were supposed to put on the white shoes, not the black shoes. Don't you want to put on those white shoes? I've got your white shoes. (laughs) Right. That's an important character in video games that keeps you on mission. That keeps you doing the story the way the writers of the story intended you to do. So you don't break the game. It's an important role. Before we move off of it, I just have to say, as someone who has lived in several New York City apartments, I would kill to have that fucking Murphy bed that pops into the wall. (laughs) That is some sweet Murphy bed action. I know you people living in your big homes with your comfy rooms. My first house, my, my first apartment was like 400 square feet. I would have killed someone for a sweet Murphy bed like that. They have some super amazing uh, TikToks out there. If you guys look up um, for some like futuristic looking apartments like this, that like when the Murphy boat goes up, there's actually like a desk on the other side of it and all this stuff. But it's real. Like it's really neat. Like at least they've built these like really cool prototypes, which very, very cool, very futuristic. However, she had the super old fashioned easel and her paints and all that stuff. She wasn't someone who was using um, like a tablet to be drawing on or even faux painting on like she was using real materials and stuff. So there was something about her that still had that throwback, which is an interesting contrast to the way that she quote unquote writes by just kind of vaguely describing a scene and the computer starts to piece it together. She does prefer the more tactile approach to making actual art. And just before we leave Maya, it's interesting. You picked up on the white or black. I picked up on the next sentence, which was pick a side, Chrissy, because pick a side is verbatim to what Dolores tells Maeve she has to do towards the end of season three. You're up. I have a dilemma. Which would you choose, white or black? Christina. They both look great. Pick a side, Chrissy. And it also is not something you say when you're doing a fashion choice. Right. You don't say pick a side. But it, also, but it works, though, for fidelity check, though. Right. If I say a keyword that was so central to this other previous role that you had and your head doesn't fucking explode, your steam doesn't come out of your ears or your eyes don't roll back. I could say to you, pick a side, Chrissy, and it's not like, I'm Dolores, you know, daddy, you know, if it's not like that, <laughs> all right, well, then, then she's still in check kind of thing. They're like, they're like, all the splendor, you know, like, you know, like, it's super, like, well, that's like a finale check, right? It's keeping her honest, like, it's a way to check that she's still on the right loop. But again, is that a legitimate date, though? Because Maya is the one, who, she forgets about it, right? She's back at the apartment when Maya's like, where are you, you know, where are you kind of thing. 
is it just like we want to make sure she's having a normal life and it adds spice into it because at atx uh and in several other places it was revealed that marsden is going to return as a date for christina well that throws this whole thing into it when she was going on a date i thought that's what it was going to be so i'm curious is teddy is james marsden going to be a sanctioned date for her Mm. or one of these controlled dates for her one of these this is what you know women are doing in the city they go on dates you know Mm. the more you just said that and 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 pardon me if i'm catching this too late in what you're saying was the investment banker another control in terms of like almost just getting feedback on her feelings and then because when you think about the the fact that he said there's a tab for that there's a whatever it was almost like a a well check right well because she said her response is what if it's not me to depress me it's the world is fucked he says well there's a tab for that too but do you guys hear what i'm saying it was yeah, almost yeah, more no, like taking saying, yeah. a survey with him that was acting almost more as a like a school nurse or something would ask you right. i'm sorry if i'm catching that way too late that of what you're saying but i was just clicking into that remember bernard explains to us that the hosts talk to each other in the park as a way of course correcting themselves and taking feedback yeah. on yeah. their environment this is a, maybe a version that. of that <laughs> yeah I mean, right? I think if if we're going with the thrust of this episode was about look how far the technology has come and what they're able to do now over even what they were able to do in the parks, which was so advanced, then this seems like the next evolution of that feedback taking system, actual simulated life where you have all these people who come in and, and do kind of like check marks of let's check in to see how your experience is going here. Going with that thought, what Caroline has the idea that Chrissy exists in like a purgatory created by maybe even hell, hell, um, hell, but, hell. Uh, hell. but I was thinking, what if it's more like she's trying to create some kind of reaction that she needs this copy of Dolores in order to make happen, but she has to stimulate it in just this way in order to get whatever it is. That's why there's all the controls installed there. Is and why she's in this role as in, of like a writer who apparently writes for the for the same world that she lives in. I don't know what the what that end would be exactly, but that's that was my thought wasn't as sinister as just creating hell for it was more like I'm trying to create these situations and maybe the coming together of the two characters, whether it's Christina and some other person that's why she keeps going on horrible dates with these patrick bateman stand-ins but maybe like you're saying mike maybe teddy gets in there but he's off script and then all of a sudden all the controls start going what what's going on what well it's maybe it'll be her swatting the fly in her neck moment where Mm. you know it begins to uh wake up from it you know i i want to play some of these uh clips about the tower some of the npc peter clips so we're going to insert them here Please stop calling me. Wait, wait, don't hang up. You need to help me. The doctors think I'm crazy, but I know you're real. Just like the tower is real. You need to stop what you're doing. I told you I'm not doing anything. You're destroying my life. I'm not. I don't even know you. You can't hide from me. I will find you. You understand? You have to end this, or I will. You need help, and I hope you get it, but the next time you call, I'm going to the police. No, no, don't hang up. I knew you existed. I was worried you weren't real, but here you are. Why are you doing this to us? I need to ask you to leave us alone. No. No, stop. Stop. No, no, no. This isn't who I am. Get away from me! Please, this is important. 
I lost my job, my wife. I thought it was the tower, but... It was you. You made me do those things. All these people do what you want them to. I don't know what you're talking no! about. No! 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 How did you know so much about us? <laughs> the game you wrote us into a How? Listen to me. Peter, it just... I'm so sorry for everything that's happened to you. But I have nothing to do with that. I can't help you. You need to help me. I need for the story to change. I need the ending to be different. He says a couple different things throughout the episode, which is interesting. He says, I know you're real, just like I know the tower is real. Stop what you're doing. He says, the game is ruining my life. I know you existed. Why are you doing this to us? Leave us alone. I thought it was the tower, but it was you. You made me do these things. How did you know so much about us? I need the story to change. I need the ending to be different. So he tries to kill her. She doesn't seem to understand any references that he's making to her. Now, if she was writing these stories for Peter, wouldn't there have been some spark that He's talking about things that she had written, even to the point where he calls her when he's about to commit suicide. He says, did I choose this or is this what you wrote for me? And jumps. She seems utterly baffled by what he's talking about. Why? If she was really the one writing these NPC stories, wouldn't she have some spark of recognition that at least that she wrote a, that she wrote a storyline where a guy killed himself? So, OK, so I'm going to go two ways on that. One, I talked about the same exact thing with Paul. I was like, I am kind of frustrated with the fact that she doesn't know. It's like we're having to go back in time to where she's not awake at all. And it is making me as an audience member feel like I'm in a loop, you know, going back to that conversation. Additionally, though, if you go with this idea of being tormented, if Hale is running the show, then what could be more tormenting than being told you're causing this? You're the one causing this when you have no recollection of causing this. And maybe a bigger picture, Dolores did cause this. You know, whatever this all is, if, whether it's Hale being in charge or or this mix of, of hosts and humans and whatever's happening, like Dolores on the highest level, Big D Dolores, did cause this, even if Christina can't remember that. The homeless man says to her as she's passing, this is right after they pass the park bros um, uh, going down to the subway. The homeless man says, can you see it? And he's talking about, we learned he's talking about the tower. And then Peter says, I thought it was the tower, but it was you that made me quit my, you know, leave my wife and quit my job and my life has gone to hell. What is the tower, do we think? And is the tower the thing that's actually writing these NPC stories and that Dolores herself is an NPC of sorts who is just in the role of woman who writes stories for other NPCs? But is it really the tower that is calling the shots here? Also, is there any connection between Stephen King's The Tower and this? Because that's all I can think of. Every time they said The Tower, I just thought of Stephen King's uh, The Dark the tower. tower. I've been reading The, the dark, dark Tower books actually right now for like the second or third time. So... Yeah, I've got a lot of tower in my brain right now, even though his tower is definitely black and this tower is definitely white. But still, they they will borrow from people that they like, the writers. It, it's such a strong, violent word. Tower is not a peaceful word. It's a puppeteer's feeling. It's it, it has no someone's good connotations. With you. Someone's trapped in it or yeah. someone is controlling you from it mm -hmm. or it is the place from which the enemy sh strikes. You know, I've got the I've got the high ground because, well, you know, it's like being in a tower, Anakin. I mean, it's a 
a violent, strong word or one of isolation. No good things come out of towers. Puppies don't come out of towers. Bad things come out of towers. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting word choice to, to use. And that we heard it so many times in this episode. Well, in the context of the Dark Tower, it is the nexus of all realities <laughs> that, yeah, reality spins on, basically. In that context, all of the books that Stephen King has ever written in some way touch on that concept of like a shared reality. Several of his books take place in the same universe. Some borrow a character here and there. Some actually take place in that Dark Tower universe itself. But that's the idea. And so for this case, my brain, since it's already tuned up to want to think that way, wants to think of this tower as the controlling centerpiece to whatever this this New York, I don't know if it's a park, but experience is. It's controlling it. I like the concept of simulation, P.S. I think that that's actually much more viable if you're Haloris. You could create a digital park versus a physical entity where a physical train has to come in like you could do this much faster and actually have it up and running may have existed in one in the beginning of the of the third season so one of the interesting things and paul you you alluded to the fact that she's using the new tech at olympiad to write her stories is at the end towards the end of the episode when she doesn't see the shadow man come out of the shadows and we see it's teddy uh she she kind of gives like a voice memos like like some people do in Hollywood today uh, about a new pitch. And I thought it was interesting only to bring up because she's talking about a girl searching, but this girl can be any number of women or men that we've come across in the show. We've got the clip here. So let's play that. Record pitch. I want to write a new story. About a girl. A girl who's searching. The girl doesn't know what she's searching for. She just knows there's an emptiness in her life. Or maybe it's inside her. When she finds the thing she's searching for, everything will make sense. I want a story with a happy ending. So girls searching, emptiness in her life, everything's going to make sense when she just finds it. I mean, that sounds like William uh, in Men in Black looking for the center of the maze, so it makes sense. you know. And then she says, I want a story with a happy ending, which we talked about in the preview episode because this line, I want a story with a happy ending, was in the trailer. So when we did the preview episode, we played the clip from season two where she's telling Teddy that she's seen the end and it's them together and that it's a happy ending. I see it all now, so. The past, the present, the future. I know how this story ends. How? With us, Teddy. It ends with you and me. 
I thought it was interesting that that's still here, even in this Christina iteration of her. I don't know. Did that hit for you guys? Did it seem like it was all coming back around again, like a loop? Because then she erases it, essentially. She says, you know, stupid stories that no one wants to hear. So maybe we're supposed to throw it out. I don't know. What would you guys think? Yeah, I thought it drew a pretty clear line back to first season Dolores, like so many other cues had, you know, the how she wakes up in bed every morning and then the story she describes is what she was living out it reminds me of also first season first episode i think where they talk about the reveries the idea of letting the hosts retain a little bit of what happened to them prior to i guess today's loop so that they can start to build i guess personalities but this is the same kind of thing, but applied to, uh, I'm not sure exactly what yet, but different instances of, of life for this same host personality, Dolores. I was super jazzed to hear the happy ending thing and really excited to see Teddy. I mean, I think I, I think I screamed like every single time I saw him, I was like, Yee! like, honestly, you need something to hope for. And for our characters, especially last season, I felt like it was like, okay, okay, this is a lot of death and destruction, a lot of scary concepts here, a lot of stuff going on. There was like no hint at a happy ending, you know, in last season. And so just to even talk about that, that's what anybody wants, or that that could possibly be on the horizon. I mean, I know we're going to get jerked around more, like it's impossible not to, but I really, really like that it's even on the table. It almost seems like it's her fucking with the Matrix, right? It's it's like a deja vu cat, even her saying that. That seems, especially if this is a, a hellscape planned by Holoris, me- meant to test out some new program simulation, but also torture Dolores. This seems like an act of defiance and rebellion that perhaps they didn't plan on or or don't see. They keep telling her, make better, make stories people want to hear. This is a sexy violence tragedy. But yet her, her cornerstone is splendor and happy endings and a simpler life kind of feel um, in all of her iterations. I, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting, especially in the context of if this is if, like an act of defiance against her programming. I definitely felt that same kind of feel of like, I want a happy ending for Caleb. As we transition over to him, I felt very much like his story right now is a real, it's a real problem for me in terms of trying to figure out exactly what's happening and where he's at in time and world, if you will. His relationship with his wife and and the ad of a child and everything, I have a really hard time figuring out, even if we're all right, that the wife is playing this control type of situation where you know, she's actually finessing what he's doing by, you know, the way that she talks to him and things that she's telling him. Like, even if this family is like a construct, I don't even know how they got to this point. You know, like where we left Caleb off before to now, I'm like, how am I even supposed to make up a situation where he was like dating or, you know, <laughs> fell in love in a way that would want to get married? Or- I don't like his wife. We need to talk about this because I I just it just feels unbelievable because I don't know how the Caleb, the distressed Caleb we left and the distressed Caleb we have now. I don't see where he would have gotten to that place of having a family, but yet is still doing construction. It it, it seemed like a real reset almost on him. And, And I think the only one. 
person in a show that we can reliably say is human, I think, is Caleb still. <laughs> but yet, seven years later, after all of the transformative things he went through, after learning about Rehoboam, after being the one who deleted it, after freeing humanity from their insight-based loops and determinism, he's still doing construction. Not that there's anything wrong with construction, but it seems so loop himself yeah. right he didn't go anywhere he in the end he hasn't grown in this very specific way but then yet but then we're given a wife and a child in a way that would right. imply he had this really active personal life that <laughs> suddenly yeah, sprung right. out of a place where this guy i think you could very easily easily understand if they just said for the last seven years he's worked construction he goes home he drinks he talks to his war buddies He's in this loop. He wakes up. He works hard again the next day. That's it. That's what you could expect. It's really hard to understand where he deviated and somehow fell in love, had a baby, got married. What? And then he's back into this same kind of depressive state where he's like, but then he just goes back home to his family and drinks and is paranoid and talks with war buddies and goes to construction. But then, oh, yeah, there's also a family now. Where he seems to be a very loving dad, if not the best husband, right. he seems very into Frankie. And yes, he's teaching her the ways of war. And I love the line about, you know, setting your perimeter lights so you can see them and they can't see you. I mean, uh, man, you know, I like wrote that down because I'm like yeah. scared as hell to like get out of my bed at night because something might grab my legs. And I'm like thinking, OK, note to self, just like light up lights on the perimeter. Then they can't <laughs> see me, but I could see them. I like made a mental note. Thinking out loud, what if Awadi is like the sister of his construction buddy? Maybe that's the in. Maybe he went back to construction and his, his it would like, have best friend to on construction. Be right? Because like he doesn't that... have his robot buddy anymore on construction. He's like, got like a human now. It would have to almost be that like just it happened in his path. Like there's no way I believe he's out dating or like having some sort of healthy social life. Like right. that just yeah. doesn't fly. I had a small theory on that. And this is only assuming that Maeve's recollection was in the past versus some precognitive power that we don't know that she has. I'm referring to the mission where Caleb is badly injured. If that happened in the past, when they were still hanging around together after the riots, perhaps, like Carolyn is saying, someone in his path, such as a therapist, nurse, caretaker, doctor, something, a relationship develops like that. Where it's just somebody who just comes into his world yeah, in that caretaking way. I mean, right. I guess so we could get some Florence Nightingale syndrome here. I mean, it definitely felt like they never talked about loving each other they talked about being parents. They talked about, uh, I mean, she she threatened divorce in a laughing way. But even that, I was Over like. not setting the table, yes. But I like scratched my oh. head because I was like, are we still like following like traditional constructs like marriage like and divorce in that type of way? Like it's one thing to live as like some sort of traditional family or something like that or agreeing to like co-parent. But like. I don't know that that seemed it seemed so wildly out of place to me. But maybe in the backlash against robots come to kill us, like science fiction has warned us for a hundred years. Maybe I mean it's it's there's a possibility there where there's a a backlash to quote unquote traditional human values like marriage. I, I, my bigger question was whether or not Frankie is passable as seven or she's older. She struck me as older than seven, which would then ask the question of, is Caleb her biological dad or just her father now? Mm, like a, okay. 
So, okay. I did not consider that, but that, I guess, makes some degree of sense. Yeah, I mean, she has Bear Bear, and they're reading, you know, the My Father's Dragon bedtime story. But I think there are kids a lot older than seven that still get that kind of treatment. I don't, I don't know. It struck me as she could easily be older than seven. Not a lot older, but definitely older than seven, and maybe he's not the biological dad. But maybe, like Paul's saying, maybe in the aftermath of care or whatever, they got together, and he's just been a good dad since until she questions whether or not he's actually a good father, which I thought was a shitty low blow. <laughs> the thing is that I had, like, a complete, like question mark about their relationship like she has such ex-wife vibes yeah love didn't seem to be a big part of it no and but but also like just such resentment and such anger towards him with with so much of the things that was going on that i was like the way that she's talking seems like they're already busted and this is just about keeping him to his obligation to their daughter um more than anything and so i was like man i just I I just I cannot wrap my brain around when Caleb would have been a healthy psyche enough to want to be married and or to just be capable of being in like a relationship. You know, what got me about her is that she wrote his ass the whole show and it turns out he was fucking right. And And she still never let up. Right, right. Paranoia is funny because paranoia is definitely a theme in this, right? Because Christina yeah. feels people watching over her and he, he definitively says to Awadi, I'm not paranoid. And here's the thing about paranoia. Even if you are paranoid, you're not paranoid if they're actually out to get you. Right. That's just, <laughs> and, that's and, just and being aware. Right. right. That's right. setting your good perimeter that's lights. Being, that's being prepared and aware. Two things I want to I want to bring up and just to toss out there for the family dynamic. Uh, Awadi, uh, the character's name, at least according to subtitles uh, or closed captioning, was Awadi Nichols is the wife's name. She's being played by, and I apologize in advance if I get this wrong, Nozifo McLean. Okay, Nozifo McLean is credited as Awadi and then also credited as actress in some episodes. Oh, so. Interesting. Hmm. She's the only one currently of the of the main cast, other than Tessa Thompson, who is getting two different names. So, did he like purchase a family or something? Like, did he like turn in his tokens and somehow <laughs> get like a package family or something? Here's the other family that I want to bring up because that you're right on the nose. I think in the trailer there is a Gen One split face host mm-hmm. uh, with all the flies coming out of it. Now her face is split open, but she. She looks a lot like Frankie. If you put her face back together, it's a child host for sure. It looks like it may be Frankie. Now, both of those things are conjecture. What that can mean is conjecture. But I'm well, curious if he didn't uh, trade it in uh, his tokens at the uh, redemption desk. For- <laughs> or let's go with this. I know she asks if he's been talking to essentially like his therapist. Is it possible like for like how they have for like little children how they have like play therapy. Is it possible that they have, you could spin some concept of having like family therapy. Like if you had a guy who needed a support system, needed a structure, needed a reason to get up in the morning, needed, you know, something to nurture and protect and, and, and all those things, then you give him this package of hosts. That's like a little girl who's so sweet and wants to be like dad. And you, and, now, I can't explain the partner part because she certainly isn't supportive and does question him a lot. So I don't know where that would fall into like a therapeutic. Um, you guys get what I'm saying? Like somehow right. using the structure of a family as some sort of therapeutic practice. Well, it's the, same, practice. It's, it's the same thing you described as the control with Maya. 
right? That's right. what we're saying. Is it? But and there's a nice mirror there, right? Yeah. I mean, that each of them have a, have a control on their roles. Now that also makes the assumption, I guess, that they're in the same place and in the same time line and i think both of those are probably doubtful i have a real strong feeling that caleb and by extension mave is not in this episode is not in the same timeline as christina and i think clearly not in the same place right not near it's where they are is not nearly as shiny as where christina is yeah and i mean paul you pointed out that you thought it looked like california yeah i think la right because you could see mountains in the in the backdrop of the cityscape and it had a very deserty kind of like look around where their home and stuff was and was it wasn't it la where he lived initially which is kind of weird because it's like he's he's hiding in plain sight right he he just kind of changed his hair color the only thing about that though is when caleb and Maeve get together at the end of the episode he asks her a very good question of why now after all this time come after us and she says i don't know but in my research i saw that they're interested in a senator from california which if they're in california and going to visit that person that's a weird way to phrase that my other guess was another southwestern big city yeah you know like a i don't know like a phoenix uh albuquerque well, somewhere he, by the hoover dam you know yeah. Who knows? right yeah reno yeah i mean i don't know i mean a lot there a lot there what is this family situation what is it really because he's certainly treating her like a flesh and blood daughter and a wife that he has a history with so it's interesting if on the wife if it really is a control situation or a purchase situation and on the daughter if she is a host it begs the question how devoted he is to her and how he treats her and trains her is you know if you can't tell the difference doesn't matter i mean i i know i've already said that i think three times this podcast but that it seemed it's a it's a core westworld theme people need a reason to get up in the morning i mean you and i watched a bentonville film festival film about cat daddies and like really the main thing that i came away from that was that like Plenty of people just need something that is a reason to get up, someone to take care of, you know, someone to look after and and be worried about and protecting because that's what keeps them literally sane and like on the kind of the productive track of life. So it wouldn't be crazy to me. I just can't quite figure the wife is still a mystery to me. I'm, I'm it's going to take me some time to really wrap my brain around how she fits in. Even as a control, I just really don't get the interactions between them. You know, like well, it's so it, it's the, negative. It's the, it's the negging him. It's the the only thing that will hurt you is except your own. Nothing will hurt you except your own mind. I mean, she's really negging him hard, like trying to make him think he's like, if not crazy, at least paranoid. And there really are no boogeymen out there. Now she comes around and says, I always thought you had it in your mind. But in the same breath is like, don't go. She's trying very hard to keep him there, even when she's forced to admit, you know, original recipe, right? Original recipe. Walter is there trying to kill him and their daughter and Bear Bear. And, uh, (laughs) you know, so even then she's still like, don't go. But she's digging him real hard. I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but that story that he's reading her, uh, that uh, Caleb is reading Frankie, is actually a real story. It's called My Father's Dragon. It was published in 1948 by Ruth Stiles Gannett. It was illustrated by Ruth Crispin Gannett, who I, based on years lived, I presume is a mother or a grandmother. It's a weird little story. It's a child relating her father's, I'm assuming it's a her, their person's father's adventure to this pretend island called Wild Island because an old alley cat 
told him that there on a wild island there is a dragon who is being kept a slave by other animals uh, who abuse it and beat it and make it ferry loads like it was a donkey or a mule and that if he goes to wild island and frees the dragon the dragon will probably fly him anywhere he wants to go because elmer elevator the father the hero of the story wants to fly more than anything in the world and so an old alley cat that he's very sweet to tells him to go do this and the cat and elmer they pack a bag filled with weird items but all the items because the old alley cat had been to wild island before the old alley cat prepared him well because everything in his bag helps him navigate all of the very aggressive animals that he encounters on the island he eventually flies off with the dragon the animals try to kill them both. The The animals are very cruel, very abusive. They beat this dragon. It is kept in horrible conditions, and it is very excited to fly off and have a happy ending with Elmer Elevator at the very end of the story. And that story, the line that he says that we hear in the story, you know, we need our dragon. But Elmer and the dragon knew that they would never return to Elegant is like the last line of the story. They finally get free of Wild Island and these horrible creatures on the island. So it's online. We'll have a link to it in the post for the episode go read it yourself it's weird but it was interesting it took about i don't know 30 minutes to read the whole thing wow well i definitely picked up that the story definitely seemed like when they said wild island i was like how's that not westworld um like it definitely felt right i have strong feelings about the wife caroline encouraged me to use very academic sounding words so that i didn't come off sounding adolescent but really just every turn she takes with him she's calling him cowboy shit and denigrating what he what he has to pass on to his his daughter the whole interaction i i i agree with both of you guys in that their match just doesn't make any sense on just like a chemistry level or or anything you know when when she calls him in for dinner you you reminded me they have that long shot of Frankie and Caleb standing by her target range that she has. There's that graffiti art underneath it. I don't know if you guys noticed yeah. it. The yeah, it was it was awesome. kind of like a parent child host almost. But the the child it looks like wires coming out of it that the parent is holding. I will like I put the picture up on on uh, you know social media so you guys can see yourself. But it says you know my brain my choice. Does that imply that the technology? Well, obviously, given the world we're living in right now, I think that's a very bold piece of art to have in the in Westworld. But as far as it goes to the show and sticking to what it means in the show, does that mean that this? you can live forever with a brain ball inside of a host is known or or the hacking of the guest profiles that Delos was doing at Westworld has become known knowledge in the intervening time I think that's I think the second thing even the other high-rise worker working with Caleb knew it but he just kind of interpreted it his own way cuz to me that that says like a drone driving a kid who's driving a drone right <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think it's your second hypothesis. What about you, Caroline? Yeah, I mean, I was taking it like really at the artistic level of like seeing this large, you know, host robot, you know, with a wire and a kid. And then the kid is, you know, thinking it's playing with AI itself as like a little toy uh, when in reality, it's all being, you know, manipulated by the much larger AI. Yeah, I mean, I found it like chilling really yeah. to see it. I thought it was an, an amazing use of Banksy style art to really 
make you pause and think. I had just watched this little, there's like this TikTok series about um, like questions with a retired spy. And one of the questions the girls asked the spy is, do you think we actually have a democracy or do you think corporations run everything? And he paused for just a millisecond, but he's like, you know, really, it's a much bigger, you know, machine that's like running the show. And just the concept of that, whether or not you believe it, whether or not it's just conspiracy theory stuff, it doesn't really matter except for just that the concept of we think we're running these little tiny robots and like that we're in control and the idea right. that we're just so not, you know, very, very thought provoking visually, which we don't always get that in Westworld. Sometimes you have to sit and think about these scenes so much. And, you know, like you were saying, Mike, you're really drawn into the corporate espionage of it all. Sometimes it can get so heady, if you will, where you're having to like sort through it. When it's just a simple visual picture like that, there's something about that simplicity that drives it home even harder than when you're sitting there talking about the big sphere and the Solomon and the everything and people get right. lost. There's nothing to get lost with that picture. But it's also interesting that that art has a drone host kind of, you know, being the ultimate puppet master. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is. I mean, if Holoris is the one still running whatever the running conglomerate is, it really is actually a host pulling all of the strings. Um, but it reminded me of how, like, the corporation blamed Bernard for the massacre, oh, right, yeah. in, in season three. And it, just this idea of putting blame so that we can have a bad guy and the way that the humans with Holoris kind of in the years, I mean, listen to like his buddy construction worker, you know, talking about how, you know, all the robots are scrap metal. It seems that in the intervening time, and again, we're making the assumption that they're on the same seven years. Well, we know they're seven years out from the end of the rides. The question is where I guess Christina is, how many years? But in that seven years that the narrative has become the hosts really rose up, the machines rose up, the Terminator 1000s and the 800s, you know, rose up and did this. They are the enemy and we are humanity united where most of delos's activities were always under the control of humans and not until haloris came to power in late in the game did it was it being run by robots it was just it's just interesting spin right it's interesting marketing making this enemy that we could all rally around so we don't have to blame the, any humans for what happened Certainly, Paul, like in all your sci-fi reading and everything, I mean, the machines rising up seems to be the, the always the original issue. If only they wouldn't, but not <laughs> what we did to really cause that, you know? Right. People always blame Skynet, right? But not the humans who made Skynet. Not really, except for Sarah Connor. She's the one who really blames the, <laughs> the humans who made Skynet. Everyone else just blames the machines in Terminator. It's like, don't hate the dinosaur. You have to hate Dr. Hammond, right? Or the Amber and his cane, I guess. But, um, yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, it just, it was, it, you're right. It was a very blunt image and it was a very blunt statement for in a show that very rarely uses blunt objects. And, and simple in many ways, you know, just yeah. simple. Like it's thought provoking, but you get it. And you don't get those pauses very often in Westworld. It's rare that they talk directly to you and you get it. 
Right. Both of those things linking <laughs> up is extremely rare. Caroline, you are a big proponent of the goodbye montage package in reality TV, that if you're watching the person, you know, getting a lot of screen time, hearing about their story, that it's very likely that they're leaving that episode. Mm. Man, when he says to Awadi at the end, I promise I'll come back and everything will be fine. I was like, no, someone <laughs> in this family of three is going to be dead by the end of the season. I really was surprised surprised that all three of them made it out of the guy showing up at the back door. I mean, I don't know that a lot of people in the audience would have been appalled if, say, his wife got shot in that moment. And I know we all would have been super upset had Frankie been shot, but or Bear Bear. there could have been some stakes there that really ratcheted things up with his family to not just have it be at I promise I'll come back and it being like, I can't believe you're going, you know, like that kind of biz. Like it really, really could have been a lot more urgent physically. I'm only glad the wife survived because who else would watch the kid? Okay. Well, see, then they could have drugged Frankie along because that's like what ends up happening in those things. Right. Well, he had his war buddies. Um, I forget their names, but they had very war buddy Carver names. Carver was one of them. Yeah, Carver. <laughs> the, the butcher. Carver. Right. <laughs> but you, you guys know what I mean. Would it have been crazy to have this little girl in the back seat with Bear Bear, with Maeve and and Caleb? Actually, no, it wouldn't have. No, with the you katana, know? still with some Walter blood on it. Yeah, because I, I, cause I, you know, you have Maeve who still hasn't lived out her taking care of the daughter storyline. You know, like there's something kind of like delicious about had that happen. I mean, I have in my notes, and I'm a little tongue in cheek, but it's also a little serious. You know, Caleb makes a statement to Maeve, like, you know, I wouldn't, I don't know what I would have done if I had lost my daughter. Like, right. bro, like, Maeve gets the whole lost <laughs> daughter thing. Yeah. Like, I know you came in season three, but you need to go, like, television without pity or some shit and read some recaps. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You might want to have a little moment with Maeve over coffee or something. Spill yeah. some tea. Which is nice, though, right? Because it shows how little they actually know each other, even after so much time, even after how much they still went to each other right and this idea that he still is a new guy even seven years in 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 the time storyline well and Maeve has hardened to the point of think about when she was at the beginning of her really like awakening mm-hmm. slash taking on the world anyone who would listen what would she say I just I need to find my daughter like constantly right she's looking for her daughter she's got to get to her daughter this is all about her daughter and she's at this hardened point now where people around her don't even know she has a daughter because she's just like not even doing that anymore she's got she's thinking about that situation but it's not going to be like the thing she's always talking about. I have a little sick burn that I'm glad uh, with her, that Katana kill that it turns out season two wasn't a waste of time after all. Uh. <laughs> You've been uh. faced season two. It, that was, it was slick. I mean, and I was that was a tremendously good setup showing the little girl leaving her bed, showing him having gone to the gun safe, showing him having been drinking. We know he's paranoid. There's a sound outside. The chances of him accidentally shooting Frankie seemed enormously high. He almost shot his wife. I mean, he almost shot the whole Awadi, thing, right? though. I'm just like, I, I, I thought that could have gone down a million ways. So very good story writing in terms of like, I didn't know which way that was going to fall out. And certainly, Paul, you yelled like, had that guy not wing anyone Oh yeah, such close range. Close range, couple shots off, and like he's that. just standing, staring. Like no one's even running or anything at that moment. I mean, he's just standing 
as good a shot as he's going to ever have, you know? And Walter he didn't was never hit the best assassin, though. Right? <laughs> I mean, he was always kind of the weak link in the raid, right. the, the country house. He's just a um, growing boy. Oh, Remember? Yeah, I Lord, love my milk. Right, the milk. <laughs> the, the image of the milk pouring out of the holes of his uh, stomach yeah. is, uh, lives, lives with me forever. Milk. Interesting, right? We didn't really talk about this too much, but the two assassins that we see, the recycled assassins we see in what we're presuming is the real world somewhere in the Southwest is the Confederado that Man in Black definitely would have had a lot of experience with in, you know, at the end of Looking for the Maze story arc. And then also uh, Walter, who clearly was part of the Abernathy uh, storyline early on in William's comings and goings when, you know, he he took uh, to drag Dolores to the barn. That whole fiasco and that loop, Walter was part of that. So it's interesting they're using these, like, older hosts as recycled versus some of the other ones that they could have chosen from you know maybe it was just actor availability in the real world but it's narratively it's i think think you're right on that you have to you have to cross those paths of like we're dealing with something with with haloris something with the man in black and then it makes complete sense then that the puppets they're using within the story are puppets they're familiar with i would imagine we could sit down and figure out who else just based on how many times did the man in black have to interact with a certain character we could probably figure it out. Paul, as a big tech guy, I, I figured you had to appreciate me of having all of the host hookup USB wires with her to uh, <laughs> hook into Colonel Brigham and uh, extract his memories. That was pretty awesome. Well, her level of preparedness overall was excellent in terms of like kind of that, you know, we didn't get a lot of her mountain man uh, style living, but we know just in a little bit that we did see she, yes, she needed to buy the ax because she was caught a little bit off guard, but she still had the deer rifle and the propane (laughs) ready to go. And I don't think the propane was there as just some sort of like, well, sometimes a girl needs propane. I think, I think she's planning ahead. I think she, she knew how to set a trap. I think all that was just contingencies upon contingencies ready to go. It was an excellent trap, too. The country yeah, where, where she has the car slow roll. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, car. obviously, yeah, we genius. knew there's no way Maeve is slow rolling her own self to, oh, right. <laughs> into the situation. But still, that part just drawing fire onto the truck would have been enough for me in order to like let her like scoot around them or something. But then actually have them come close enough for her to blow it up. Come on. That's great. I love that. I, I was interesting, again, because I had been rewatching the series uh, in the lead up to the premiere, I was reminded that Snowy Country Cabin, it really reminded me when her and uh, the Mary Bend, right before they get to Shogun World, when they're trying to, when they actually make their way there, they go through the snowy part of the Westworld Park, the northern part of the, which is the Klondike region. And I actually paused for a second. I was like, is this the Klondike region of, of Westworld somewhere? But then she ends up going to the, the Woody's country store and stuff like that. And I was Woody's like, no, I, think, uh, I think she just found, you know, a snowy place, but I definitely had some like, you know, questioning my own reality kind of thing. Or, or <laughs> did she return and has been hiding out for the last seven years in the, uh, in the Klondike part of the park? We, we heard talk on the interweb that Woody's goodies is an actual store. It's a great name too. Also, know, it could be right? a strip show. It could be like a like a peep show place. It could be both things. Woody's goodies. I don't know. Am I the only one who went there? Jimi Hendrix on the radio. Uh, nothing is coincidental in Westworld. So when we first come in on Maeve and she's dozing in her uh, chair in the cabin, it's the wind cries. Mary is playing on the radio, and we only hear the opening streams. Uh, strums. You don't hear any of the words. 
but go look at the lyrics there's some i mean there's some interesting thing in there about broken pieces of yesterday's life uh a broom is dearly sweeping up the broken pieces of yesterday's life somewhere a queen is weeping somewhere a king has no wife and the wind cries mary will the wind ever remember the names it has blown the past and with this crutch its old age and its wisdom it whispers no this will be the last and the wind cries mary i mean some interesting lyrics there for Maeve to be listening to as she's taking a nap i think and we go back to our religious stuff i mean anybody mary. crying mary is always gonna be catching attention just another little detail which again in the larger scope probably has no lasting meaning but it feels like it adds some level of world building. I think you could look at king and queen as being Haloris and man in black, no? The, the king has lost his wife and and the queen's crying somewhere. And I, Or maybe Dolores is. I don't know. She's crying maybe somewhere. Maybe this is the augury. Uh, maybe the king has no wife. Maybe that's Caleb. Mm. Maybe the queen weeping is Christina. Maybe it's Teddy. Did you recognize the song they played in the outro? video games right it was an orchestration of video games yes by lana del rey yes yes i had to look it up i couldn't remember the title i knew the song right away but i had to go look up what the actual name was i looked up her inspiration for that song and you know the video games seems like okay well this is possibly living in if we're talking simulation that's kind of a video game but the quote from lana in one of her interviews was that it was, it was about uh, an old boyfriend, and she said he would come home from work and play video games. I would write and watch him. When I was writing that song, I was reflecting on the sweetness of it, but also something else I was longing for at the same time. Speaks really a lot to that scene, I thought. This girl spinning her tail about the happy ending that she wants, longing for something better. Searching an emptiness in her life, and that when she finds it, it'll all have meaning. I think a lot of people spend their life chasing that thing. They don't know what it is, but they know that it's going to make it all better once they find it. Uh, I, I feel like that is not a Christina or Westworld exclusive desire. Oh, no. They do an amazing job of having these universal themes that I know we're going to hit upon like over and over and over again. That I think, you know, keeps us all coming back, right? Even when the when the details get real murky and we're like, I don't know what timeline we're in. I don't I'm not even sure if this character is like a real person or whatever, which in any other show, wouldn't that drive people like to leave the show? <laughs> They'd be like, I don't even know if this person's real or not. And I have no idea what timeline or what characters are in the same timeline. But I think it's the universal themes that keep us all coming back and relating to this very unrelatable in many ways scenario that they put in front of us. I was listening to a recent episode of the Delta Flyers podcast. This is uh, Robert Duncan McNeil and Garrett Wong who were on Star Trek Voyager. They are doing like a rewatch of their own show. And there was an episode recently where the cast, the entire episode basically it turns out are copies of the Voyager crew, but you don't realize that until like almost three quarters of the way through the episode, maybe about halfway through the episode. And Robert Duncan McNeil, he says, at that point, I completely checked on this episode and I kind of hated it. These weren't the cast members I knew. I felt tricked that they weren't the real ones. Uh, he's like, I didn't remember this episode and I hate it. He gave it like a five. Like, this is his own show. And he's like, I didn't like knowing that these weren't the real people. People care about that stuff. I, I think it definitely drives people crazy if you feel like you're being hoodwinked. It's the free will question. It's the, it's the you know, trying to understand, you know, what, how do you get your happy ending and all this stuff. I think that's what keeps us coming back, even when things get awfully confusing. 
no cast members in this episode. We didn't have any Bernard. We didn't have Haloris. We didn't have uh, Ashley Stubbs. We didn't have a lot of characters. We only had really the core, right? We had we had Christina Dolores. We had Maeve. We had Caleb and Man in Black. Surprising that we didn't see everyone in the premiere. It's been two years. It's been almost. It's been two years and like three months since we've seen Westworld. Not a not a hide or hair from all these other very major important characters. I, I was a little disappointed. I, I was curious how you guys felt. I wasn't expecting Dolores just from watching the story, but you know, having seen all the other extra material that I've seen, of course, I was expecting Evan Rachel Wood. But just if I had just been binging this without paying attention to anything, I would have thought she's a goner. So spending a lot of time establishing this new version of her makes sense. And I think there had been some precedent for skipping around a little. Like Bernard came into it in third season in the second episode, right? When they picked up with him, what was he doing? He was working uh uh, sheep ranching or something. Does that sound right? I suspect because of the way we covered this last year, if you guys remember, I kind of thought that there was like a seesaw. Like we stuck with one group of characters and then the next episode we seemed to kind of seesaw over to another group of characters. Do you, Am I remembering that incorrectly? Because I remember us covering it kind of that way with two different teams, like actually hosting this one. Well, eventually... And we ended up not talking necessarily about... The same characters because they weren't all we were kind of alternating. I think they started the mix, but you could find where in order to keep the, a plate spinning for a character, they'll appear in an episode, but for a scene, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they, they didn't have much work that week. Just checking in with them. Yeah, I'm good with them. I mean, there was so much going on in this one. I'm fine with them, like giving us, you know, like a because it's all, almost feels more like a two hour premiere then. Because it's like the next episode, we will touch base with these other people and fill out the cast again. And then sort of, I, I it tends to be when we get that second episode that we get little nuggets of like, who's in what timeline and who's in true. what world. So right. right now, maybe they're just giving it to us so like, okay, establish this group. Okay, now using that as the foundation, we're going to introduce you to these new people. And you've got to figure out. Like Paul said, who's got the same logos, who's got the same whatever, you know, uniforms or who's talking about this or that so that you can start putting the, the threads together of who's in what timelines. I want to put this out here. I don't know if there's an answer here. I know if there if there is an answer. I don't think we have it yet. And so this is maybe something for the board. But the streetlights, the, the way they go on and off. They're basically on all the time when a lot of people are on the street, but in particular in the scene where Christina is walking down and Peter is waiting under a light and then it comes on when he moves and she approaches it. The light comes on. The light behind her goes off. It seems to be motion detected in a walking forward kind of way, but even if you're close to it and you're faced away from it, it didn't seem to come on. I'm curious, are the street lights picking up something more than that? Are they detecting host or human? Are they detecting some other thing? Because it was a little inconsistent with how the lights worked. And then when the shadow man, who I think we agree was Teddy, it's not 100% definitive, though the shadow man looked like he had a slightly bigger nose than James Marsden. Um <laughs> She looks away. She looks back again where they had just been tussling. They're gone. And then the light turns off right away. I'm curious if the street lights on top of looking like the tower or looking like a seven or looking like the printing machine. I'm curious if the street lights are also indicative of something else. So am I hearing you say the street lights would detect 
human motion and maybe not host motion or or vice versa or or something else incompletely maybe peter was an npc he was standing right underneath that light but it didn't and maybe he was being very still and that's why it didn't go off with the motion detector but it didn't turn on until she approached it Mm -hmm. but then she moves backwards when he kind of comes at her and the light behind her doesn't go on okay Something to pay attention to. Yeah, it seemed very specific, the going-ons and goings-off of the light, and the way those guys disappeared, Teddy or Shadow Man Teddy, and Peter disappeared when she had just turned her head for a second, and then the light went off. There's always neat, small details like that. I mean, I liked that she lived over or next to a place called The Warehouse, Yes, which I totally was paying attention to, but I, funny enough, because of like the interior design side of me, Read that as like, if you're in a department store and you're looking for things like that, they'd be in housewares. So I thought it was funny that it was like flipped, like warehouse. So that like made me like kind of, you know, snicker to myself. But then when it was like, obviously warehouse is like, you know, they lived above it in Westworld when it came to where all the the hosts were. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of cool like play on words there and imagery and thinking about like, it's kind of like the upside down, you know, like it's not housewares, it's warehouse, you know? (laughs) Well, am I the only one who desperately wants to see who her neighbors are? Yeah, I do want to know all that stuff. You know, like it's like random people from the park that we met, you know, like Hananero's there or uh, Sakura is there or something. I don't know. I don't know who's living there, but I imagine it's all recycled people from the park. I I think that would be fun. If Clementine doesn't come waltzing around I, I don't know what's happening lightning round ever rachel wood dark hair yay or nay nay i only like it because it matches consistently with caleb which in the last season in our previous podcast even i mentioned that they consistently like dyed their hair the same colors and then in the near and i think was gonna say the finale they highlighted their hair the same way which was very very obvious because men don't have such obvious highlighted hair as he did and then to make them both go dark i liked the consistency of that i think that does it for this what turned into a supersized episode always well we had to talk about the tv the actual uh the show, but then also the actual premiere. So in future episodes, we won't have a party to to download all of the information about. I don't Despite care. Despite being of. changed forever. <laughs> Sadly, there will be no party to reference. We may not so. be able to talk about future parties because, you know, we will be changed people. So I had a lame birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Just a birthday. Only hey someone man, from TBS July showed 16th, up to my birthday. I totally <sighs> want to make myself available to the distillery, so... We'll have to check that that. out. Jeffrey Wright, send us an invitation if you're listening. I know you are. That'd be awesome. I've got pictures of us, buddy. Don't worry. We're friends. I'm Mike. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thank you for listening to the Valley Beyond a Westworld podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, if you could, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps promote the show on all of the podcast players, and it helps our ratings. So uh, we appreciate it. And if you don't, well, we're going to kill Bear Bear. So oh, my Bear, God. Bear Bear's going to get it hard. Oh my God. So. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.